Welcome to Rattlechim Broadcasting Network's review of episodes one through three of Daredevil. I'm Gavin, and I'm assuming that Mark Rattlech is going to join me and not make me fly solo. Come in, Mark. <laughs> I'm here, sir. How you doing? I, I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of last-minute research, making sure I didn't miss any tips and trivia and inside information and, and quirky little Easter eggs hidden inside the first three episodes before we get started here. But it seems like I'm uh, more cut up than I thought it would thought I would be. I have to say, uh, Daredevil was not my uh, my most favorite character of the Marvel pantheon. And when I heard they were going to do these uh, series for Netflix and Daredevil was going to be one of them, my reaction was kind of meh. And then I, I was I was looking at people's reactions to the series and said, all right, people seem to be making a huge fuss about this, claiming it's it's great. So let me sit down and start watching it. And as it turns out, my first impressions, and I've only watched the first three episodes, um, but my, the, my first impressions of Daredevil were they did a better job uh, of, of creating a Gotham television show than the actual show Gotham. Well, that's always been... The thing with Daredevil is that the origin story is somewhat similar to Batman. The character itself is somewhat similar to Batman, uh, at least on a psychological level, Uh, which is not to say that Daredevil is a ripoff of Batman because there are inherent parts of each character that, that separate them. Um, But that was, for me, the biggest part of dealing with the Ben Affleck version of the Daredevil movie that it played too closely to the 1988 Tim Burton Batman film in that you had this very gothic-looking city. Everything was very dark, and we get it. Daredevil's blind. Um, but it was a very gothic, very dark-looking city. You you had the repeated imagery of laying a rose at the place where his father had died. Uh, you have this mob corruption, a city that is at its very core broken. Then you have the extended fight inside of an elevated location, which sees the uh, main bad guy plummet to his apparent death from the top of a church bell tower and onto the ground below. And so it played a little too closely to Batman for my liking. However, I am a fan of the Daredevil character. I'm a fan of the Daredevil comic books, and especially the last couple years uh, where Mark Wade and Chris Samney have sort of, uh, they've injected a little bit of levity and brightness into the comic book that for many years through guys like Frank Miller and, and Brian Michael Bendis was incredibly dark. And I don't think that the Mark Wade version that's much lighter would translate as well to the Netflix series as the darker version that we're getting. When they rebooted the Incredible Hulk comic book and uh, made him an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and called it the Indestructible Hulk, um, Bruce Banner had an uh, insurance policy. That is, if something happened to him or if he were betrayed, you know, like maybe sent up in a spaceship into deep space to live on, uh, on a planet or something like that, that... Uh, he, you know, his partner, his hidden partner, his, un- his mystery partner would be contacted and 
you know, something, you know, helpful, you'd be saved or something would happen. And that mystery partner ended up being Daredevil, <laughs> Matt Murdock. Uh, and I liked that aspect of the character that, you know, he was sort of there for guys like Bruce Banner in case S.H.I.E.L.D. screwed him over. And that element of his character, I think, comes out in this series, that this isn't just, you know, this isn't just Jim Gordon fighting the unending fight uh, in a city that's corrupted from the inside out, that he, he's also... He's he's there to he's fighting uh, he's fighting for the innocents, um, the innocents. The he's fighting for the you know for the people who are uh, are need you know are in need of of a hero to fight for them. Um, and one of the things that I liked about the first three episodes was, and I'll tell you this: if I were a kid, if I were you know ten, eleven, twelve, watching the show, I probably would have hated it. But as an adult, I can certainly appreciate this aspect of it. There's a lot more of a focus on him using his powers to identify, you know, the people who are telling the truth and who are innocent of the crimes they're being accused of than there is him being a superhero beating the snot out of people in the street. Um, but I will say, yeah, there's also and that, here, that's, there's that's also a eerie similarity to Batman Year One in this. Yeah. Yeah, this is sort of the ground zero of of Daredevil. And the thing with the heartbeat that you're talking about, the identifying who's guilty and who's innocent, that becomes a hallmark of the character later on, where he decides he's only going to defend people that are telling the truth, and he uses their heartbeat as a lie detector. And obviously that opens up plot devices such as, well, what if, what if someone can remain calm enough while they're lying that they can beat Daredevil's built-in lie detector? Um, so I, I think they're doing a good job of alluding to these things without being overt about them. And that's one of the problems that comic book, uh, properties present is it's very hard to be subtle with some things. And yeah. I, I was kind of worried that they would get hammy with, with some of what Daredevil does because in the comic books, you'll see Daredevil's view of things represented by uh, almost a, a topographic radar. And I was really hoping that we wouldn't get something like that on the show. And at least through the first three episodes, we haven't. I certainly hope it's not coming later on. Um, and, and we don't get anything like we saw in the Ben Affleck movie where he sees, uh, watch your face, Jennifer Garner, where he quote-unquote sees her by way of the raindrops bouncing off of her. Um, instead, they they use things like his hearing, his, his heightened sense of smell, to just sort of, instead of overtly showing you, hey, this is what Daredevil sees and experiences, they just relay it to you in real time as he takes it in as in explaining it to other people. And, and I like the little bits of subtlety that we get as opposed to beating us over the head with the, the powers and abilities that he has. Uh, I, I'm going to jump right into Charlie Cox's performance. One of the things that really sells me on the show is his understated performance. He's not chewing scenery. He's not 
um, you know, jumping out in the middle of the screen going, I'm here to defend the innocent. I mean, that's what he's doing, but he's doing it in a, in a very laid-back way. You know, he... Um, and, and even his... Uh, and even the scenes where he's a daredevil, he isn't all... You know, it isn't... You, you could believe that a guy um, who's had martial arts training and has heightened senses is doing the things that he's doing. I, I, I haven't been taken out of the, uh, of the show, just in the first three episodes at least. I haven't been taken out of the show. I mean, they use the entire second episode to show you that he can get beat up and nearly killed. Um, yes. And that one of the things that, that makes him a... Uh, one of the things that makes him a hero and sets him apart from others is his will to survive and persevere, you know, even, you know, even in the face of a beatdown. Um, but, but getting back to my first point, Charlie Cox is playing the role, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a very laid back, subtle way and not in a sort of a scene chewing, um, you know, overly bomba- bombastic way. And I think that's why it works. Yeah, and and Charlie Cox, I think, has done a a very good job of capturing what the essence of the Matt Murdock character in the comic book is. Because Matt Murdock in the comic book, these Marvel characters that Stan Lee created in the 60s, the the common theme with all of them is they're inherently flawed. There's something at the core of them that separates them from the all-powerful characters of the DC universe. And that was the big difference between DC and Marvel for so many years, was with DC, you were essentially getting a modern version of the Greek gods. You were, you were getting Superman. You were getting the Flash, who was the, the fastest man in the world. You had Wonder Woman, who was the alpha female, the Amazon warrior. Um, you had uh, Green Lantern, who could make anything he wanted with his mind. You had Batman who could outsmart, outthink, outwit, outfight anyone. And so DC creates these flawless characters, these ideal men and women that can save us from any problem. What Stan Lee created with Spider-Man, with the Hulk, with Daredevil, with the Fantastic Four, were a set of heroes that were intrinsically flawed and that people could relate to. Because Peter Parker, for all of his powers... He lost someone very close to him. He struggled to keep a job, and his main concern were, was protecting the people that he cared about. Those are those are all things that your average person on the street can relate to. Um, with the Hulk, it's the idea that Bruce Banner has to keep his emotions in check. He can't let his temper get the best of him. Certainly something that most of us can relate to. And with Daredevil... Daredevil is is the guy that feels like he has to carry the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he does so with a with a false aloofness. He he moves through things with this confidence and with this air about him that he's in control of the situation. When in reality, as you pointed out, he's very much human. He he can get beat up. He can get killed. He makes mistakes. He makes errors in judgment. He finds himself in situations that I'm sure will come into play later in the series that could have been avoided if he had simply used a little bit better judgment. Uh, And so he he becomes the self-appointed big brother for the world. And and I think that Charlie Cox has done an excellent job of capturing that. And it's not something that's easy to portray for the first three, 
episodes of a series. It's something that becomes much easier over a longer arc. Uh, but I think that he's done an excellent job. And you said that he doesn't chew the scenery. I agree with that. But he certainly commands the attention of every scene that he's in. And he should because he's the focal point of the show. But, uh, for example, the scenes where they walk in to meet Karen Page, played by uh, Deborah Ann Wall from True Blood, or when he's going back and forth with what we later learn to be um, Wilson Fisk's right-hand man, he commands the attention of the scene. He, he has a very magnetic presence on the show. Oh, I would absolutely agree with that. He he is the star, and his star shines bright on the show. Um, and he's got a very magnetic personality, and a, and uh, he his performance is magnetic as well. Um, I just did. I wanted to make the point though that he he's not Captain America, and that's not a slight against Chris Evans, but right. uh, Chris Evans' portrayal of Captain America, besides being a man out of time is that he is, a sim- he is a symbol of goodness. He's as close to Superman uh, as we're going to get in the Marvel Universe without all the power. Um, you know, right. he, 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 is, he is the best of us. And that's not Matt Murdock. Um, nor, you know, nor is, and, and I'm going to make this real quick comparison, nor is he Batman, where you know, certainly he's got some stuff going on with him, obviously, but he isn't nearly as tortured. Uh, a character as Batman turned out to be as the years went on. Um, right. But he is definitely, and I will say this, this is not a one-man show. More often than not, I find with a lot of shows, they cast the lead, and everyone sort of revolves around the lead, and the lead is the anchor of the show, and, it's, you know, and the whole thing sort of lives or dies by their performance and uh, their ability to draw viewers. And that's not the case necessarily with, with this show. I would tell you that, uh, you know, the guy that plays Foggy and, um, you know, uh, I said Karen Page, um, the, uh, who's the one that patches him up in the second, Rosario Dawson, he's got a great cast around him. And they're all playing, like, I can't complain about anyone's part so far. Even, pe- you know, people who play minor roles, in this, like uh, in, the, in the third episode, the guy that they're defending who uh, does the hit and then at the end gives up the kingpin's name and kills himself rather graphically. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, yeah. You know, every, I haven't seen anybody yet who had broke the fourth wall so badly with their acting. You know, I, everyone has, has uh, kept up their end of a scene. And it makes for, for an excellent dramatic television. I mean, I, you've, you've heard me say many times the best show in the history of television is The Wire, and this is not the time or the place to have that argument once again. That's the, the time and the place would be the casual heroes, WrestleCast. But, um, but uh, I, you know, one of the reasons why I said that was everybody showed up to play. You know, it wasn't one guy, you know, and a bunch of scrubs or whatever. It was an ensemble where everybody hits their notes in every scene, and that's so far what I've seen out of Daredevil is I haven't seen a weak performance out of anyone. And as a matter of fact, um, it's one of those shows where there there have been shows in the past where I wasn't interested in what was going on with any of the other characters other than the lead. 
either I didn't like their stories or I just didn't like them. And I haven't had that problem with Daredevil as of yet. You know, when they shift away to Foggy or when they do a flashback to when he's a kid or when they're with the villains, I'm still drawn to those characters and what they're doing. And I'm interested uh, for, the, you know, for the full hour of the show. To me, probably the most impressive uh, bit player, and not bit player, but secondary player behind uh, Charlie Cox has been Vondi Curtis Hall, who plays the uh, African Americanized version of Ben Urich. And uh, normally, you would hear me screaming about things like, you know, "There's no need for this. It's obviously a, a an appeasement for racial diversity to make sure there's a black character on the show, et cetera, et cetera." I have no issue with this simply because Vondi Curtis Hall has been magnificent as reporter Ben Urich. I have thoroughly enjoyed his portrayal, and he's been in a lot of stuff through the years, but nothing that really jumps out at me or anything that I remember particularly seeing him in. But I've been very impressed with Ben Urich, and he's really drawn me into that arc of the show. Yeah, he, uh, like I said, I wasn't uh, tremendously familiar with the Daredevil comic book. So the, the first thing they showed him in, uh, I didn't know who he was supposed to be or what, or what the point of it was. But I kind of opened my mind to it and said, okay, well, let's, let's see what happens here. And if nothing else, I was drawn in by his performance. Uh, I enjoyed sort of his point of view on things. And the next time you see him, you know, he's arguing with the editor about a story and, you know... <laughs> see season five of The Wire for more of this sort of thing. You know, it's like, hey, your story doesn't sell papers. This does go do this. And his frustration with that. But he himself uh, plays the part uh, so so well and with so much uh, fervor and emotion that I was interested in what he was doing and, and, and why he was doing it, even if uh, his motivations I've, I've already seen played out in an entire other series. For anyone that's a fan of the show that may not be a fan of the comic book necessarily or isn't familiar with who Ben Urich is, uh, Ben Urich is an old-school beat reporter that still believes the news should be reported as the news, which, again, uh, Vondi gets across very well. Uh, But at the same time, Urich also represents just a throwback to an older generation. He's very resistant to technology. You'll see him carrying around a notepad and scribbling in it instead of typing things in on a phone or a digital recorder. Um, He still sniffs out leads. He still throws out bribes like cheese blintzes to hospital uh, uh, CEOs or presidents to to help smooth things over that he needs. Um, He's just very much an old-school reporter and he sort of becomes the voice for Daredevil. He becomes the guy that tells Daredevil's story. So if this plays true to the comic book, we're going to see Daredevil through Ben Urich's point of view several times. And it it sort of ties you to where Daredevil is in Hell's Kitchen in New York in the larger universe and the things that are going on. He becomes the, the sort of deus ex machina to tell us what's happening in other places, because there's no reason 
to bring up certain other things in the Marvel Universe or in Daredevil's world, but you can have Ben Yurik talking about the story he's working on. So I'm interested to see how they put him to use. Again, very impressed with the portrayal so far. One of the things I've really liked about the show um, is how it fits into the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe, which it was meant to. All of these shows that were developed by Marvel and Netflix are uh, supposed to fit into that world somehow. And this seems to be, um, well, at least in the first three episodes, it's not stated directly. It's certainly nodded to. Uh, this is in the wake of the Chitauri invasion that we witnessed in The Avengers. And they're rebuilding New York, that, you know, New York that has been devastated by, uh, by the invasion. And I like that. I like the fact that things matter. You know, for what anyone thought of the Avengers, and I have been um, known to say that it was less a movie and more of a roller coaster ride, you know, more of a more of a simulator um, than anything else. Um, there are stakes. Things matter. That something that happens in a movie like The Winter Soldier has ripple effects that affect Agents of Shield and affects the next Avengers movie. You know, obviously, it doesn't affect things like Guardians of the Galaxy uh, because they are not in the same um, sphere as of yet. But you know, it, it gives me hope that there's a big, you know, there's there's a big plan and a map, you know, at this Marvel uh, Studios where you know when something happens in a movie, you know, it, it affects these other areas. And and Daredevil is right in the middle of that. They're dealing with a with a New York post-devastation, which opens up opportunities for criminals and no good next to do dastardly things. And they jump right into that with the first episode without having to lean too heavily on either those events or the Avengers themselves. You know, and that's it. That's all you need. You just need to know that, hey, we're living in a world that was fucked up by Loki and the Avengers and go. And so I like that. Um, I like that connection to it. And I'm anxious to see what more they do with the greater Marvel Universe on this show. Well, uh, episode one is, it's interesting because a lot of times the plot, the pilots for shows feel like they have to throw everything at the wall, give everything that they can away, see what sticks and go from there. And that's a byproduct of the network television landscape. You have to make a splash. You have to get immediate attention. Netflix series don't have to do that because they have a set amount. They're not going to get canceled after the fourth episode if they're not getting ratings. They know that they have a definite 13 episode arc. They have 13 hours to tell their story. And so they can afford to pace things a little bit differently. And we see in episode one, uh, I believe it's titled Into the Ring, um, we we see the backstory of how Matt Murdock became Daredevil. And I, I really, really enjoyed the Frank Miller-esque opening of Matt Murdock sitting in the confessional booth. Uh, I thought that was very well done. And... Uh, it definitely veered away from colors, loud noises, and explosions of the Avengers, and it took you into a darker, grittier corner of the Marvel Universe right off the bat. I also thought the confessional scene um, 
was a very stark contrast to the hero figure in and of itself. Um, many of these heroes that we've seen in the movies, Iron Man, or they're you know they're not particularly reluctant heroes. Um, they, uh, I mean, maybe the only one that's sort of reluctant is the Hulk, and that's because he's a, you know he's a he's an out of control beast. But you know, if everyone else sort of chases their heroism, um, you know, and and sees themselves as being part of a greater good. That's certainly one of the themes going forward with the Avengers and leading into Civil War is what is the role of the hero. Um, whereas what I got from the confessional scene is is somebody who didn't necessarily want to become a quote-unquote superhero, but was rather pushed into this by circumstance. You know, he sees a city that's, that's corrupted and he feels that something has to be done to give the you know, to give to to give police and lawyers an edge to take the to take the city back. You know, it, it's this is it, you you get the sense very early on that he's taking a drastic measure be, because he feels like he has no other options. And I like the fact that he asked the priest for forgiveness for what he was about to do because he knew what he was about to do on some level is wrong. But it right. has to be done. It serves the greater good. So right there, uh, you know, beyond from what we've seen so far in the Marvel Universe. Well, beyond our introduction to Matt by way of Charlie Cox, we also get uh, our introduction to Frank Foggy Nelson, uh, played by Eldon Henson, and I, I was very impressed with the chemistry that these two have uh, because the role of Foggy is not something that's easy to play. And in the comic books, Foggy is the levity, and he is what keeps Matt grounded. He is he is the humor. He is the heart of the book. And uh, that's not an easy role for the comic book to, to maintain the levity, the humor, and, and to be the heart of a guy that's probably going to go very dark places over the next 13 episodes. Uh, I thought that their chemistry right off the bat was fantastic. It made things a lot of fun to watch. And Matt's calm and cool demeanor in the legal situations plays perfectly off of this almost frenetic energy that Henson brings to Foggy. Yeah, I like the, I like the interplay between the two of them. I like the fact that, you know, Foggy Nelson is not, you know, John Lowercat's character from Night Court. You know, he's not a scumbag or anything. He's, you know, he's what anybody wants to be. You know, he wants to do, uh, you know, good things, but he also wants to make money. Um, he's, you know, characters that are shades of gray and more, you know, and more like actual human beings are more interesting to me. And, the, and he is imminently human. Obviously motivated by money, but not a greedy, villainous, you know, mustache-twirling jerk. And I think he's, all, you know, he's also the guy who, in many scenes, especially in the first episode, is the one reminding Murdoch that you're, you're going to have to bend on certain things in order for us to be, have any kind of success. That, that right. you know, whatever, whatever idealism you're clinging to is going to have to give way to some, some real, uh, some realism. Um, and again, I also like the fact, you know, that as they introduce 
the uh, Karen Page character, again, I, you know, I, I said he's not like uh, Dan from Night Court. He's not so overly sexual that it gets ridiculous as, 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 as the episode goes on. He's like any other male. You know, she's a pretty female, and she doesn't appear to be nuts, so, you know, why not? Um, those are the I would, I, just for the record, I would, I would watch John Larroquette as Daredevil, if anybody's wondering. <laughs> you would, you would, John Larroquette as Matt Murdock, that works for you in, in casting? Absolutely. John Larroquette as pretty much anything works for me. I'm not saying that it would be good. I'm saying I would watch it. Sure. Um, but yeah, he uh, he doesn't... Th- th- I've seen too many characters written or, or acted that are just one note. You know, th- they're there to hit the jokes. And that's not what Foggy is doing. You know, Foggy has a perspective. Uh, you know, he has a voice in the show. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it's backing Murdoch up, and sometimes it's in contrast to Murdoch, so that there's, like, you know, tension in the scene. And uh, it worked very well for me. I, I, was, I was very surprised because as soon as I saw his character, I kind of went, oh, no, not this again. And I, I, was, I was happily surprised. Yeah, you, you can't have a Daredevil without a Foggy. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in watching that relationship grow. Uh, and as far as relationships go, Karen Page is the notorious relationship in the Daredevil book. Um, throughout the character's history, she's been a thorn in his side, uh, not as an enemy, not as someone who necessarily betrays him, just as someone that is a constant source of stress and grief for who Daredevil is and who Matt Murdock is. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to go into great spoilers because I don't know how long they're going to take to develop that or how they're going to develop that. Uh, but Deborah Ann Wall does uh, an excellent job of making Karen Page both look both uh, like a victim and like a very strong character who's willing to fight for herself. Uh, the setup with with her leaning over a, a bloodied homicide victim holding the murder weapon and screaming it certainly paints an interesting picture for this lawyer and, and, and his partner and gives you almost a... Uh, a John Grisham type feel uh, for the whole thing. And especially as they get involved with the, the henchman for Wilson Fisk, uh, we see Toby Leonard Moore playing Wesley as he's the guy that pulls the strings for Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk. And he, in his own right, I know he's not the big bad on the show, but he, in his own right, is just a, a creepy, creepy guy. The scene where he's coercing the father into doing whatever they need him to do, and you know, and they do so. First of all, nice use of modern technology. You know, I, I, what was that? A Microsoft Surface? <laughs> and, yes. And so they have, uh, and so they just open it up, and there's a clear view of the daughter uh, at school, and you know, there's a henchman sitting right there within, you know, within a few feet of her. And he's like, give us a wave. You know, it's, it's like, huh, this is the sort of thing that uh, we're, we're doing now in film and tin television. We're, we're really using, you know, the, the tablets and, you know, internet connectivity and social media uh, as a way of moving the plot forward. It was, it, was, it was a fun scene. But, yeah, he is, he is slimy. He is menacing. 
he is everything you want someone to be. I mean, he kind of reminds me of a, of a, of a uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Wolf of Wall Street type, you know, where he's, he's just, what a, what a smooth psychopath. And, yes. and, and you know, we're not, he's not Maleficent or anything. He's just very matter-of-fact. Uh, we, you know, we have the world by the balls, and you're going to do what we want, or we'll just start killing you and everyone you know. Um, <laughs> it doesn't get much more simple than that. Yeah, and he's he is the perfect mafia flunky. I, I, I've greatly enjoyed him. Uh, I inadvertently sort of skimmed over Karen Page, played by Deborah Ann Wall. What are your thoughts on her uh, and her performance in the first episode as sort of the the helpless victim that Daredevil has to come safe? I thought it was a spot-on performance. I like her better in the second episode when she's dealing with the trauma of the thing. But um, this first episode, she's sort of thrown into this horrible situation, imminently believable. Um, Yeah, the cops are not interested in your fairy story. If they see you kneeling over a dead body covered in blood with a knife in your hand, you're you're going to jail. (laughs) It doesn't matter what your story is. Um, So I, I liked all of that. I liked... Uh, you know how she slowly came to trust Murdoch and Foggy, um, and you know, and how the situation resolves itself. A little, you know, good performance. Uh, she gets more interesting as the show moves on. But you know, in the beginning, it was just getting getting that whole plot uh, and it, that 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 part of the story uh, resolved. You know, so it. It's funny, actually. I uh, I didn't know what to expect from Daredevil, and I put it on with my kid in the room who's four years old, and about five Uh-oh. minutes into the show, I, my wife was like, all right, and Lily has to go to bed. Good night. Like, yeah, whoops. <laughs> yeah, this, this is definitely... Now, again, if this were based on the Mark Wade Chris Samney version of Daredevil over the last couple of years, which, by the way, Mark, I, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to check out Mark Wade's run on Daredevil. Um, he's done two series. One uh, was entitled Here Comes Daredevil, and it was, I believe, 36 issues long. And then it rebooted as just Daredevil, which I think it's been another 17 or 18 issues. Um, but the first two years of his run on the book, it won several Eisner Awards for Best Ongoing Superhero Comic. Um, just the excellent portrayal of the character and a new spin on things. But it, it would have been perfectly okay for Lily or any other child to watch because it's a very sanitized version of Daredevil that focuses more on his legal abilities and his ability to track things down using his heightened senses. We're not getting the Mark Wade version. We're getting the Frank Miller version. And it's going to therefore go to very dark places because that's what Frank Miller does. Dark Knight Returns. Um, Sin City. And probably the Daredevil story, Man Without Fear. And so, yeah, it's certainly not child appropriate. Uh, all in all, I thought the first issue, first episode was a strong introduction to the series, strong introduction to the characters. And if you have even a modicum of interest in the first episode uh, or in the series, uh, I can't imagine that the first episode wouldn't pull you in hook, line, and sinker. 
Yes, the, I thought the first episode did what it needed to do, which was um, generate enough interest in seeing how the rest of the series plays out. Well, the second chapter uh, was um, probably the best of the three, and that's not a knock on episodes one or three, but episode two, uh, entitled Cutman, was a home run by every definition of the term. Uh, you mentioned Rosario Dawson and how well she played Claire and her involvement as she plays a good Samaritan to a guy in a mask and a costume, and we later find out what her motivations for those are. But we also get uh, some insight into the final days of battling Jack Murdoch, the club-level fighter that happened to be Matt Murdoch's father and how he met his untimely demise. Um, we also get a complete absence of Matt Murdock, the lawyer, because he is all daredevil in this. Um, and I know what I want to talk about most in this episode, but I will let you throw out what you liked and, and what you thought about this before we get into that incredible, incredible fight scene in the hallway. The part that, that I focused on and the part that kind of kept me interested was their dynamic. Um, you know, this stranger taking in this guy who was beat to shit and fell in a, you know, and then thrown in a trash heap, uh, and her taking care of him, and him being kind of um, uh, secretive with what he's doing, and you know they're revealing little bits of information as the episode goes on, and then there's that whole rooftop bit, um, you know, and then finally you know he goes and rescues the boy, and you're right, the uh, you want to talk about art in direction. You know, th there are fist fights, and then there's, you know, and, and then there's awesome directing of a fist fight. And this was definitely a case of the latter. You're right. This one, because of the narrow focus and because they really slowed down things so that you could focus on the characters, the people that are driving this show, uh, I thought it was stellar. And... It, it was an interesting one to do it because, again, as you said, normally that sort of thing they would have stuck with Matt Murdock. In this case, they slowed the camera and the storytelling down so that you could get to know Daredevil. And Daredevil isn't just punching his way through things. Daredevil has a point. Daredevil has a perspective on things. Daredevil has a motivation. And it, it isn't just fight, 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 kick, 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 punch, 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 ninja, ninja, ninja. You know, because he's got to sit there and deal with this nurse, and this nurse, you know, over time reveals to him that, you know, he's saving innocent people, and that is enough for her to reach out and, you know, and help and help him. Uh, I really thought that was great. Um, thought, thought, thought they took a chance. <laughs> this could, there could be somebody, you know, who saw this episode and was like, oof, can we, can we get back to, uh, you know, the stuff that we enjoy about this show? You know, too soon, too soon. But I thought that even though they took a chance, they uh, they hit it out of the park. And I was very impressed by the performances and by the direction. Well, very quickly before we start dissecting that fight scene, uh, I thought they did a good job of breaking things up just every now and then by cutting away to Foggy and Karen and their night out on the town as they wondered what had happened to Matt. And I thought it was uh, a touching moment in the bar where Foggy was clearly making up names and backstories for people to put her at ease. Um, it, it shows the the true character and, and the true heart of Foggy. 
Um, and, and the fact that he's willing to do that uh, to help uh, someone that he barely knows, that they have a very brief acquaintance, it, it gives you an idea of the character that Foggy will be throughout the show. And, and I enjoyed that they used those scenes to break things up and keep it from becoming uh, too incredibly dark. But really, mental, let's talk about the fight scene. One second. As, as a mental health professional, you know, you watch any episode of Law & Order, you have something horrible happen to somebody, a very traumatizing experience, but they focus on the legal part of it, and then the show's over. And then you never see what happens to that person later on. The nice thing about this is that, you know, the first episode could have been a Law & Order episode, uh, with, you know, with this person being, you know, the victim of a, of a horrible crime. Um the nice thing is the second episode was the day after, you know, what happens to these people who are put in those circumstances and how does it affect their mindset? And I love the fact that, you know, she felt like she couldn't go home and that this, this wasn't a relentless pursuit of sex so much as it was somebody reaching, you know, trying to reach out a friendly hand and say, it's okay. You know, I'm I, I'm here for you. We're here for you, and we know that life sucks right now. But you know, we're going to help you get through this without actually saying any of that. Uh, and so, I really I enjoyed her having to deal with the trauma of it all. And as you said, I enjoyed him um, you know, creating a situation where she could start to heal for no other reason than it, than it's the decent thing to do. And I'm sure right. on some levels this is a motivation, but it wasn't necessarily prevalent in that episode. Right. And I think if you're going to characterize the character of Foggy Nelson with one word, decent is the word to use. He's a decent person. Um, but really, the fight scene. Um, <laughs> I, I could go on and on. We could do an entire podcast about this fight scene and the attention to detail in it. And the layers that are are in this, um, because first of all, we've pointed out that Daredevil is a hero that gets hit. He is a he is not invincible. He is not indestructible. And he limps into this fight to begin with. He, he's been patched up. He's almost died choking on his own blood and and fluid in his lungs. Uh, he has puncture wounds, he's bleeding, he's had a rough day already. So he limps into this fight, and he does so fearlessly, because, again, he is the man without fear. And what progresses over the next three minutes or so is one of the best American cinema fight scenes that I've ever seen. Um, It's very much an homage to Old Boy, with the fighting in the hallway with one man against uh, a small army of thugs. And we see Daredevil bouncing off of walls and doors and, and, and using uh, various uh, non-traditional fighting techniques uh, as he goes against this, this band of thugs. But what really struck me and what really impressed me with the fight was it's evident that this is a long shot one take deal that, you know, obviously there may have been more than one take at this, but whenever they filmed this, however many takes it took, it was filmed in one long shot. This was not fight for 20 seconds, cut, reset, cut, reset. This was, this was a, a three minute fight scene 
and the exhaustion starts to come into play the longer it goes on. The punches are not tight. They're sloppy. You start seeing things that are less kung fu technique and more desperation punches and bouncing people off of things. And all in all, I thought this was just an absolutely brilliant scene in the episode. One of the criticisms um, that comes up for, you know, things like the Phantom Menace is the fights always looked overly choreographed. You know, it's just fight, 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 fight. Everything looks like a ballet. There are no stakes. It's just, you know, fighting for fighting's sake. And it gets boring. And it's one of the things that drives me crazy. You know, it, it's why I don't particularly like kung fu movies. You know, I, the fight is, is a thing. And it's either necessary to move the story forward or don't use it in the first place. And what was great about this was there was, a, there was a story in this fight. You know, from beginning to end, uh, you know, the end being he rescues the boy, spoiler alert. Um, you know, there, there, there is a fight in this story itself. It isn't just guys throwing punches in a very uh, pretty ballet kind of a way. And you're right. You know, what, obviously you know, you have someone who's a trained martial artist, so to not show technique would be stupid. On the other hand, as we know, if you've ever been in a fight, and I have been in plenty, as you get tired, the technique goes away. Guys aren't throwing punches like, you know, like they're trained to. You've got a very realistic, uh, you've got a very realistic um, impression of what a fight looks like after time has passed, and, you know, the guy who's being successful in the fight is exhausted. And you're absolutely right. The, the, between the long shot and the attention to detail in that matter really made it, um, it, made it artful. Uh, it made it engaging. And I found myself rooting for Daredevil besides the fact that he's the hero in the story. And the stakes are there's a kid at the end of this tunnel. You know, I'm rooting for him yeah. because clearly... You know, this, this, this is, uh, you know, Frodo at, at the gates of Mount Doom. This is, you know, this, this is a man against insurmountable odds uh, who is beat to shit, you know, trying to, trying to get to the end of this test. And, yeah, and it was great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. There, there's always something to be said for guys or girls in these heroic situations displaying sheer force of will. And that's what we got here, was a very well-shot, long-formed um, fight scene where Daredevil slash Matt Murdock is putting his sheer force of will on display. And uh, good for him, because I don't know how many takes it took Charlie Cox to get through that, uh, but God bless him however many it took, because it came off beautifully. And and I hope, I hope that they don't go back to the well on that. I hope that that's something that, you know, occasionally you can revisit it. You you can have these type of fights because Daredevil, throughout his character's history, it ends up unfortunately having to deal with evil ninjas and Russian mobsters and things of that nature. But there was a magic in what they pulled off in the second episode, and I certainly hope that they don't ruin it by trying to recreate it over and over. No. Real quickly, um, the flashbacks to the father. I just want to say I enjoyed 
the father self-sacrifice in the end because he, at the end of the day, his son looked up to him and he needed to show his son he could win. You know, there's a practicality and there's a psychology and emotion to things and that was a demonstration of um, despite maybe <laughs> common sense, despite logic, despite one's own self-preservation, here was a man who, you know, who gave in to his emotions and just wanted to show his son that he too could be a hero. And he did, you know, and he wins the fight despite it all. And, you know, you know, and, and much to his, much to his d- demise, um, unfortunately, but it sets off, but it sets off the son in another direction. You know, who knows if he would have turned out to be Matt Murdock, attorney at, uh, attorney at law, had he not gone to live with his mother because the father pretty much went on the run and presumably was killed. So, um, but I, I did like that. I did like, I did like the fact that the father walked away from being, you know, a punchy and a palooka and, you know, and a guy who throws fights for money and said, you know, I, I too can rise above this and be a hero for my son. Yeah, it, it's, it's a nice touch and gives you some idea of the motivation that keeps Daredevil going and why he keeps getting back up, why it's important for him to keep fighting when there's a situation like this young boy that needs to be rescued and and returned to his parents. So a a nice touch. And again, very well done on episode two all around. Um, Certainly the strongest of the three so far, at least in my opinion. Um, Looking at episode three, uh, we open up in a a bowling alley and it would have been nice if this had taken a, uh, a big Lebowski turn or even a Kingpin turn, but instead we get another pretty visceral fight uh, between one of Wilson Fisk's men and someone who apparently is on the wrong side of Wilson Fisk. And we see Nelson and Murdoch get their second client after a meeting with Fisk's right-hand man. I love the intrigue of that. They know he's slime. <laughs> they know he's connected to um, the guy who who has the New York City by the balls. And yet, there's a practicality of taking the case because they need money. You know, and Foggy doesn't know that Daredevil. And so there, there's that uh, tension as well. And I really thought that there was, there was a lot of balls in the air in this episode. And they managed to keep them afloat uh, fairly well. I was uh, I was fascinated by the idea of we know he's the bad guy, but we're going to do this anyway because there's a greater good here. There, you know, there's a surface greater good of we need money and they're paying us a lot, and there's the underneath um, practicality of at the end of this maybe we can turn this guy for information, and they do, but unfortunately that results in him killing himself. Yeah, he he went out like a champ. Yeah, he did. That's uh, that's that's a tough way to go. That's that, that's not an easy route when when you decide to uh, headbutt a jagged piece of metal. I suck at first. Um, you're 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 leaving no doubt about it. Well, they it, it's a television and movies are a show me don't tell me medium, 
And if you are trying to tell people how fearsome an individual Wilson Fisk really is, headbutting a jagged piece of metal is a great way of showing people this guy ain't no one to fuck with. Yeah, and you, we don't see a whole lot of Vincent D'Onofrio in this episode, but what we see of him, that impression comes through very clearly, that, that he is a man who carries himself with a very quiet, dignified power, but at the same time has made it very clear that he is not afraid to get his hands dirty. Well, the, and the idea of, you know, the, it, there's how he maintains his power is through fear, and it is the fear that, you know, it's, it's one thing to sacrifice yourself and to make bad choices and all that. It's a whole other thing to put people you love in danger, and that is the crux of his power, is that he uses information to find out where your family is, and he crushes them. Just, at, you know, puts them, at, puts them in harm's way, and crushes them, so you know, so that the message gets out that if others follow suit, you too will lose your family. And it kind of goes back to the Spider-Man thing of it's one thing to be Spider-Man and put yourself on the line; it's a whole other thing to have Aunt May and Mary Jane and uh, you know, and uh, Gwen Stacy in harm's way uh, when they're not superheroes or had anything to do with the conflict in the first place. And this was also the debut episode for Vondi Curtis Hall as Ben Urich. And we see what's going on with him um, as he's negotiating with an insurance company in the hospital and his editor and trying to keep Karen Page from doing something that'll get herself killed. Uh, I thought he brought a nice energy to the show. I thought he was a nice change of pace as a character, as an actor, uh, a nice change of pace visually and not just because of the skin tone, because, again, he looks very rumpled, very disheveled. Uh, a very throwback look for a reporter. Um, and I won't dwell on this too much, but I, I really enjoyed Ben Urich in this episode. And again, I, I enjoyed the subtlety of how Daredevil operates. Um, I'm tracking Wesley's Cartier watch and knowing where he's going and when he's appeared in the courtroom by listening for a distinctive ticking that he is associated with him. Yeah, that was a nice touch. Um, one of the things the show gets right is attention to details, and that's certainly an example of it. Um, it was definitely an episode that got me interested in where the rest of the series is going, you know, because we finally do get to Wilson Fisk, and uh, otherwise known as the Kingpin. Um, and certainly he was Daredevil's big bad uh, in the comic book. So uh, things are off and running now, and uh, you know, we, we, are out of the, we are out of the first quarter of the book. We are we are into the uh, we are into the second quarter here where things are going to start to pick up. Yeah, I'm really looking forward, like you, into getting into the next chunk of episodes here uh, and seeing what develops. I have a feeling I'm going to be very upset when the 13th episode is over and I have to wait on something else to show up. But yeah, I look forward to going through this. It's a character that I enjoy, and it's a character that I have uh, developed a greater affinity for over the last few years, and so. Uh, I'm very happy that they've gotten this launched and that they've gotten this launched with a a significant backer, a significant partner in Netflix and Disney, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe continues to grow and expand through digital streaming media. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. Sans one Mark Radulich. My name is Gavin Napier, and I will be your host for the evening. And I do believe, uh, unless Mr. Winfrey can correct me on this, I do believe that I'm joined by one Robert Winfrey and one Benjamin Clone. How are you, gentlemen? Uh, I'm good, Gavin. Ben is attempting again to call in via Skype. Ben, are you there? I don't know. Am I? Am I there? You got it working. We're all set to go. <laughs> Episodes four through six tonight. Um, start with Ben. Ben, what did you think of the the opening trio of episodes one through three for this series? Uh, I enjoyed them very much. I, I'm actually one of those that uh, pretty much set aside the entire day on April 10th and uh, was up till about two in the morning watching all of them. And each one was pretty comfortable saying each one was, was better than the last one. I, I know that myself and Mark sort of gushed over episode number two, particularly the fight scene that served as an ode to old boy. Uh, with its its long shot, one take, um, attention to detail with one man fighting a small mob. Uh, Robert, what what in the first three episodes stuck out to you? Well, first of all, it needs to be noted that when you say it references Old Boy, that is the original South Korean film, not the Spike Lee bastardized version. Uh, just for the record, for anyone out there who's curious, the South Korean one is the good one. Spike Lee uh, failed miserably. Now, I'm with you about that particular fight sequence. I think it, uh, you said it was one of the best uh, hand-to-hand combat sequences to come out of American movies or television in the last like five to ten years, and I'm hard-pressed to disagree with you there. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me and plays more, not in these three episodes, but I think the following three uh, in particular, I was really impressed with the interactions and the on-screen chemistry between Matt Murdock and Foggy Nelson. Uh, the guy who plays Foggy Nelson, coincidentally, uh, Ben might get a laugh out of this. The same guy who used to who uh, portrayed uh, Fulton Reed on the Mighty Ducks franchise. For those of you wow. who are, and I got my brother just about to spit crap out of his nose because he didn't know that. Just random trivia for you there. Now the the main cast all has excellent interplay and good chemistry between them. It's a an important thing, especially in something like comic book adaptations. You've got to have the on screen chemistry there, and if you don't, everything else kind of falls apart. Yeah, and Daredevil being the series that it is, and the source material that it takes from, the chemistry is going to be a big part of everything that happens on the show. If it's going to be a successful property, because the dynamic of the comic book is such that if the Matt and Foggy relationship isn't there, then the whole thing sort of comes apart. Um, It's very much the glue that holds everything together. And then spinning away from that, you've got um, Wilson Fisk, and you've got Karen Page, and you've got Ben Urich, and you've got all these different characters that get pulled into Matt's world. But it, it all starts with Matt and with Foggy, And with that, we'll go ahead and jump into episode four. And what what jumped out at me in this episode was both Matt and Karen Page were incredibly reckless in in their pursuits in this. We see um, Matt throwing himself carelessly into danger um, over Claire, who uh, has 
certainly pulled him out of the fire once or twice, but we also see Karen trying to do some amateur detective work only to be nudged along by Ben Urich and give some advice. Um, certainly fans of the comic books will know that, that there's probably going to be a lot more turmoil in the Matt Murdock and Karen Page relationship. Uh, speaking speaking on the topic of Karen Page and her little uh, amateur attempt at finding out who's behind these attempts on her life at the auction. Robert, how do you feel like Debran Walls pulled off the character of Karen Page so far? Uh, so far, and I'll go ahead, I don't know if I'm going to be on any of these in the future, I'll go ahead and say I think she does an admirable job throughout the entire series, uh, which should avoid spoiling anything. Uh, it's very easy for that character to be written as a kind of prototypical damsel in distress, and it, it's very lazy to do so as well, mind you, but very easy. And thankfully, both the writing and the acting, when it comes to that character, don't go that route. She's in danger, certainly, but it's more because of her own inexperience. She's actively seeking out, you know, she's proactive instead of reactive. And there's a world of difference as far as his characterization goes. A proactive character is someone who's very, very easy to root for, very easy to get behind, and you're much more forgiving of them, as opposed to a reactive character who sits back and has things happen to them. And she's absolutely proactive, and it's very much to the benefit of everything that it, that, that particular character is handled in such a way. Ben, I don't know what your history with Daredevil is. Are you a fan of the comic book, or I, I'm a very big fan of the comic, actually. Okay, now when Mark and myself were discussing this last week, I mentioned how Frank Miller's tone that they have adapted this story from was much more suited uh, to what Netflix is doing with this than perhaps the most recent Mark Wade uh, run of Daredevil. Do you think that they've done as good a job as possible as capturing the Frank Miller vibes through the first six episodes? I think not only have they done a good job of uh, capturing the Frank Miller vibe, I think they did a good job of improving on some things that uh, were lacking in, in Frank Miller's run on the comics. And um, I've said this before, I've said this earlier this week, Frank Miller has kind of a bad rap when it comes to writing female characters, and it's not entirely undeserved. Um, Karen Page in, in in the show is a little bit more capable and uh, a little less uh, sort of reactionary, I think, as uh, Robert kind of was, was going into. And she she's... Uh, She's sort of taking it upon herself to to uh, get involved in in these these things that are uh, that are happening around her that she clearly sees that it, you know something is wrong and um, that's something that was not always there in in the incarnations of uh, Karen Page that, that Frank Miller wrote. Well, Matt and Karen, uh, while they both certainly played significant parts in Episode Four. Um, they were they were almost a a secondary tale to what I felt was the very meat and potatoes of this episode, and that was our real introduction to Wilson Fisk and the man that will eventually eventually be known as the Kingpin. We get a little bit of insight into his character's background. We get some insight into who he was, who he is, who he's going to be. And for much of this episode, 
it's this dichotomy of Wilson Fisk between being the boogeyman that no one's willing to speak his name and taking the time to humanize him and showing that he cares about something other than his ruthless criminal empire. And that's this art baroness, Vanessa. Um, Ben, what, what did you think about D'Onofrio's portrayal of the kingpin here? Because I've heard mixed reviews of it online. Personally, I enjoy it with the thick, heavy New York accent, and he sort of mumbles his words like Brando. And uh, I've enjoyed it from what I've seen of it so far. Um, I'm not. I'm not even sure where where the reviews have been mixed. I've seen almost universal praise for Vincent D'Onofrio in, in, in the show, at least critically speaking. I'm sure. Well, I'm not. I, yeah, I'm not speaking of critics because, like you said, the critics have just raved over everything about this show for the most part. Um, speaking of just friends and people on Facebook and seeing just casual reviews of the show, the one thing that I've seen criticized most often has been D'Onofrio's portrayal of Kingpin. I have no problems with uh, this portrayal at all. This is, I think, uh, when it's all said and done, Vincent D'Onofrio is going to be the thing that uh, is going to be the thing in the character and that uh, is going to be the most remembered from this first season. And I think it was a very, very smart move that we do not even see him until episode three, the the last minutes of episode three. Charlie Cox needed those three episodes to establish himself as the star of the show, as the protagonist, as and to establish his own character because Vincent D'Onofrio is, is so magnetic with this role that he's playing and the, and the character is so easy to just steal scenes and steal entire episodes that it was very good that this uh, something that the show does very well is build moments and that moment at the end of episode 3 where you first see uh, Wilson Fisk was built up to over the, over the entire first 3 episodes and then the events of of where episode four ultimately ends was also built up to you. Uh, you presented with Wilson Fisk as this sort of reserve, but kind of uh, a little bit socially awkward, uh, you know, gentleman businessman, and then it it builds up to you know you're you're told he's you know he's this this feared figure in the underworld but you don't really see that until the very end and then you understand why he's so feared he's so feared that people don't even want to say his name out loud i think the the ending of episode 3 where the thug just realizes you know what i've given up his name it's better that i go ahead and impale my head on this spike than continue in this world. Um, I, I think that that more than anything really established its level of fear with who he is. Robert, do you prefer the portrayal of Wilson Fisk as the boogeyman, the soft-spoken guy that's to be feared, or do you like seeing him get his hands dirty? Like at the end of this episode where we see him manage to decapitate someone with a car door. Well, the beauty of Wilson Fisk, and not just as a character, but in this portrayal, the writing of it, I I will say this, I am not a fan of Vincent D'Onofrio in general, I mean, at all, but he is just fantastic as 
Wilson Fisk here. But one of the great things about the character is the stark dichotomy between you have him when he's trying to be social, when he's talking with Vanessa and asking her out and trying, you know, being on a date, and he is incredibly socially awkward. And rather than being stupid, it's actually, I mean, almost endearing, despite the, because you've not yet actually seen what Fisk is capable of. Then you see him interacting with his other, with, you know, the other parts of his criminal empire, and he's a very calm, very assured authority figure. And then at the very end, you see him snap, and he's one of the most legitimately terrifying things that, that is in this entire series it occurs when he dra- at the end of episode three when he drags the Russian mobster out of that car and proceeds to beat him to death. Uh, I actually I need to bring this up because otherwise I might forget about it. But there's a real kind of subtle illusion is with what they're going uh, for what they're going for with Fisk uh, that occurs in episode three and also in episode four. Any t- uh, for the sequences where he is in the art gallery talking with Vanessa, as well as on their first date. The musical choice in the background is actually the aria from uh, Bach's Goldberg Variations. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to most people out there. and I, I mean, I only know it because I'm so steeped in the mythology of the character that it references. But that is the piece of music that is playing over Hannibal Lecter's escape from prison in The Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yes. And it's, again, this is a very subtle thing, and I'm assuming it's deliberate on their part. That again, maybe you just get a bit of an association with, you know, Hannibal and now Kingpin, in that again you've got a again the great thing about Hannibal, uh, whatever version apart from uh, the one from Hannibal Rising, which we do not speak of, is just kind of his again, his dichotomy. He can appear very cultured, very, you know, normal, very polite, and then the next minute he's tearing your face off with his teeth. So they've set themselves a very good and in many ways a very accurate kind of comparative standard right off the bat. And it's a really brilliant and subtle choice to help introduce uh, Wilson Fisk as a character. I also, I I would like to submit uh, that I want to see the phrase put him in a car become slang for that guy's a dead man. In the yeah. in the same, in, I want that to become a meme in the same way that Hail Hydra became a meme after Captain America: The Winter Soldier. <laughs> Just saying. Internet, you have been given your task. <laughs> I, for me, again, this episode's all about the villains, and, and not just Wilson Fisk. We we see Madame Gal, we see the Russians, and obviously these are going to play into different parts of the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Marvel Netflix Universe as it is. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, through the first four episodes, and uh, especially as we go on through episode six and tonight's show, uh, certainly the opportunity to discuss some more of these, but we've already seen a handful of potential rogues for, for Daredevil. Um, we've had the allusion to Crusher Creel already, who will go on in Marvel mythology to become the absorbing man, which not a guarantee that we'll necessarily see that on this show. However, Crusher Creel does go on to become the absorbing man at some point. Uh, again, Madam Gal, Madam Gal, we've we've referenced her, um, and, and there's some speculation about a uh, who could arguably be 
referred to as uh, the Daredevil villain, uh, the the Joker to Daredevil's Batman uh, at the end of episode six. And I won't spoil that. I'll wait until we get into that episode. Uh, but before we move on to episode five, anything else you guys want to mention about episode four? that I, I may not have glossed over. Uh, the only thing I want to mention is that they continue referencing some of the events in the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I appreciate. Uh, specifically in Episode 3, the line that Wesley... Wesley bothered me for a while, and it took me a minute to figure out why, but I know a guy who looks almost exactly like that actor, and it was disconcerting. <laughs> uh, but, but, no, there's a scene in when Wesley is talking with the Russians... Uh, about, you know, how is this guy so, you know, can keep kicking your ass? It's not like he's got an iron suit or a magic hammer. And, you know, little allusions to the greater MCU. Oh, one other thing. That uh, whole scene in the uh, taxi garage when Daredevil, uh, when Matt Murdock rescues Claire, I imagine that's what it's like to be on the wrong side of any of the Batman uh, Arkham series games that happen to be stealth missions. Um, just, this is about, this This is as effective an introduction to a main villain of this kind as I've ever seen on, on a, you know, episodic TV. Um, I think it hit every note perfectly. It built up to, you know, one of the many, like, money moments in this series. You know, if, if um, if if the the single shot fight sequence in episode two defined uh you know what daredevil was all about you know in the costume as you know as a just this unstoppable force of nature that will not give up and will just keep fighting to the point of exhaustion this did the same thing for wilson fisk uh this this established him as a character it established him as a physical presence it told you everything that you need to know going forward from this point on exactly what he's about in every way that he is involved in, in the series. Well, moving in into episode five, Wesley was mentioned, and I, I want to focus on this as we go through episode five because there's a lot going on with, with Wilson Fisk and with Wesley. They're very much the other side of the coin to Matt and Foggy. And as much as the chemistry between Matt and Foggy on this show is tremendous and jumps out in a very positive way, I think that Wilson Fisk and, and his right-hand man, Wesley, I think they have an equal amount of chemistry, and I think they play very well off of each other. Um, Robert, you mentioned that you know someone that looks very much like the actor who plays Wesley. I, I see him as almost an evil Josh Charles from The Good Wife and, and Sports Night. Um, I, I, I really enjoy those moments when Wesley is on screen and, and the chemistry that he has shown with Vince D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk. I am very much a fan of the way those two interact with each other because... And Fisk himself mentions this, uh, that Wesley is his friend, which is, a, again, a very important distinction between everyone else in his life, apparently, that Wesley is someone who actually matters to him. Everyone else is, you know, they're tools, they're associates, acquaintances. They're not actually friends. And he is friends with Wesley, and I think it's one of... I, I can say this without spoiling anything. I think a big misstep I, in many ways in season one is they don't... We don't get a lot of the backstory between 
Fisk and Wesley, which I feel could have been very, very interesting. And again, I, I can say that without spoiling anything, that it's just an aspect of their relationship and the, that is not expounded on, uh, to my satisfaction at least. Uh, which is sad because, like you said, on screen they play off each other very well. There's a lot of you know fun interactions between them, but that's also extraordinarily serious. Uh, I mean, to the point where watching Wesley not react at all to Fisk's just like brutal car door decapitation of uh, the Russian Anatoly is—it's. Uh, Telling in so many ways that he doesn't react to it, that this has clearly happened before and will happen again. I mean, these are two people who have been together for a long time, and it's sad that we, in this season, we do not get more of that. Ben, what, what's your take on, on the Wilson and Wesley relationship here? Uh, beyond what Robert said, because being a fan of the Daredevil comic. I know oftentimes we see Wilson Fisk acting as the kingpin, just sort of barking orders at underlings. And very often in the comic books, there's no real strong secondary helper for him. There's no right-hand man for him in the comic beyond just sort of prototypical goons. Um, does, does Wesley add to the kingpin for you? Is this a development on here that you have enjoyed with the series? Um, I'll take this opportunity to say, me personally, I, in, in my opinion, I don't think there are any two characters, any two major characters in this entire series that interact with each other on a regular basis that don't have good chemistry, which is a really important thing, and it adds a lot to to this show in general, because then, you know, you actually enjoy seeing characters interact with each other. Um, and that's that's not always the case. In this in in this instance, I actually really like um, what you said before that um, that it's sort of a mirror between Wesley and, and Wilson Fisk. Uh, it, it's a mirror to what uh, the dynamic is between Matt and uh, Foggy. I, I, that's that's pretty good. Um, if uh, you know to make a to make a broad and probably comical distinction, but it might make Robert laugh that he, you know, he's uh, he's Waylon Smithers to Fisk's uh, Charles <laughs> Montgomery Burns, you know. Uh, he's um, yes, sir. He's he, he's uh, he's the one that's uh, that sort of makes everything happen. Uh, Fisk is is. Fisk is the brains, but only to a certain point. You know, Wesley is kind of the man behind the man, and, and that's really important. I'm actually trying... I, I've, it's funny, because I actually have Daredevil Born Again in my hand right now, and I'm trying to flip, because this is... I don't remember if this is the if this is the comic book story that introduced Wesley as a character, and he's not a big part in the story, but he there's there's one line that, um you know, you'll... I'll, probably come back to when I find it that uh, where it's something along the lines of where uh, all of uh, you know Wilson Fisk is in a meeting with with all of his underlings and all of his underbosses and um, and he dismisses all of them and they all leave as per his orders and the narration goes something like you know um, everybody 
all of Sif Underlings need to do his, his work, except for Wesley. Wesley always stays behind as the last man to hear any last orders that Wilson Fisk may give, and that's why everybody's always so nice to Wesley. I yeah, need to Wesley. Uh, curse you real quick for something, Ben, because you brought up the Smithers comparison, and now I can't get out of my mind the image of Wesley turning on his computer, and instead of... And you get Wilson Fisk doing the bit that Smithers has with his computer turning on. You're welcome. For those of you, for those of you who don't know... It's a Simpsons episode where Smithers turns on his computer, and it's a. We all know Smithers is gay and in love with Mr. Burns, but in this particular episode, he turns on his computer, and you get a very chopped together, synthesized version of Mr. Burns saying over the speakers of this computer, "Smithers, you're so good at turning me on." And now I can't unhear Vincent D'Onofrio saying that in the Kingpin voice. So thank you for that. He'd totally do it. You know he would. <laughs> he would too. In in. Watching how these characters interact with the rest of the cast and not just with each other, Wesley carries his own bit of menace as well. Like he, he has a very foreboding presence, and I think it speaks to uh, the director and, and how the show has been plotted because Wesley himself doesn't do a tremendous amount of really anything on screen to portray menace. He doesn't have mannerisms to speak of. He has a very flat affect. He has this very cold tone, and it's a very matter-of-fact, business-like approach. But he carries his own bit of menace uh, as as you see him appear on screen, which I think is what makes him such a nice parallel to Foggy, because Foggy is always upbeat. He's cheering people up. He's trying to help people. And we see that in this episode. We see a, a bit of Foggy's backbone come into play, which we haven't seen through the first four episodes. As they go to the firm where Foggy and Matt interned, and he runs into his ex, who is now a partner, and he stands up to her. And we see a bit of Foggy's backbone, which gives us a little bit more depth to Franklin Foggy Nelson. And and we see... Something that I've noticed, many of the scenes, not all, but many of the scenes with Foggy tend to be very brightly lit in the show as opposed to the the dark shadows and the undertones of things with Matt, with Wilson Fisk. Um, Foggy, I think, has done an excellent job, and I'm I'm very taken aback by the chemistry that we see between Foggy and Karen in a romantic sense. I, I did not anticipate a, a budding foggy and karen uh relationship uh, then for people that aren't familiar with the history of of matt and foggy and karen uh give us a little bit of background from the the comic standpoint versus what we're getting on the show um in the comics um and and I haven't read uh you know the original original stuff extensively but I know there there was kind of a I guess a friendly like love triangle uh, between them from time to time on again off again between between the three of them that's hinted in in here um also you know this would be a good time as any to recommend uh, anybody who's interested in uh, Daredevil Yellow by uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale uh there's a little bit of it in that as well um it's uh, it, it's it's interesting because even because in the comics it was never so so it never got vicious to the point where 
it really compromised anybody. It compromised the friendship between um, Matt and Foggy or either of their relationship with Karen. It, it was always uh, the the friendship won out, but there was still, you know, there's, I guess you could call it sexual tension between, you know, between these characters. Um, that's played subtle, and I think it's it's a good idea. It's not something that I I think the show would have benefited from jumping right into. There's there's time enough for that if they want to explore it a little bit more. I think the way they they hinted at things here and there uh, worked pretty well. Um, uh, you know, Karen's pretty clearly interested in 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 Matt at least in a curious sort of way, if not a romantic sort of way. And, um, you know, Foggy's clearly interested in, in a somewhat more romantic way in Karen. And it, that shows through. And once again, you know, no, no, no two characters, no two major characters really have bad chemistry in this show. And that, and, and you extend that to the three main characters and no three main characters. Those three main characters have great chemistry playing off of all three of each, uh, all three of each other. Robert, while we see Foggy and Karen sort of gravitating towards each other in an absence of Matt Murdock, we see Matt Murdock playing up the stereotypical, almost uh, cliche at this point, vigilante character in that the females in his life are always drawn to them, but no, no, we, we must not do this because it would put you in harm's way. Um, we see... Matt and Claire gravitate towards each other very briefly, and then they both sort of push away because they realize what the relationship is, Matt realizing that he's placing her in danger, and Claire realizing that this may not be a healthy relationship after all. Well, I appreciate Matt, Matt that... Murdoch... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, first of all, I was going to... I'm, I hadn't picked up on the lighting stuff with Foggy the same way that you had, and that actually is a stark contrast to one of my favorite episodes of the entire season uh, that comes along later. We won't be discussing it here, but it's... Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you what the... T- again, the episode is uh, Murdoch v. Nelson. Uh, again, one of my favorites of this whole se- of the whole season, uh, hands down. And the lighting changes a great deal on that, and uh, I hadn't paid attention enough to notice that one, but... Uh, so thank you for picking that up on me. Uh I agree about the, you know, the cliched trope as far as, you know, the vigilante can never possibly find actual lasting love and happiness, and it's a bit, again, it's a horrible cliche. At the same time, it's a, it's handled a little bit differently here. The issue with Claire is more that she already knows Matt is Daredevil, and that and the Russians are aware of her existence, and that puts a whole different spit on things from Matt potentially having a relationship as himself. And it, I don't know if they'll be able to explore that at all. I mean, obviously, to one degree or another, they're going to. But it's more that, uh, and the impression I got from this was it was more the angle that they came at. You know, Claire and Matt were kind of doomed from the start because she knew who he was, as opposed to someone like Karen who, you know, does not is not aware of Matt's you know dual identity. And uh, and again a nice little quick shot out uh, shot at uh, Batman this time around when Claire asks if he's one of those billionaire playboys that wears masks and fights crime at night. Nice. 
<laughs> the 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 subtle digs in this show, and not just at DC and other comic books, but you know, on on Wilson and Vanessa's second date, we we hear mention of a prince in a white suit wearing an ascot, and Fisk says that's a bit much, isn't it? And <laughs> they're they're not above taking digs at themselves, which I, yeah. I think is nice. If you if you're going to take digs at the other guys, you got to be able to take some digs at yourself. Um, it, we get one of the great contrasts between Marvel and DC is DC's characters, both heroes and villains, are larger than life. They are extremes. They are complete in their essence of what they are. Superman is incorruptibly good. He is unbelievably powerful. He always does the right thing. He always saves the day. The flip side of that is that every villain he has that means anything is completely evil with with no humanizing characteristics. Lex Luthor just hates Superman, and he wants to destroy him, and he wants to take over the world, and he's a ruthless, greedy, miserable person. You know, Brainiac just wants to categorize all life and wipe out anything that isn't him. So it's this very extreme versions of good and evil. Same with Batman and Joker. Um, same with Hal Jordan and Sinestro and Green Lantern. And we see this over and over. In Marvel, we get more humanized characters. The heroes have flaws, and, and the villains have motivations that make you empathize with them on some level. And I think that's why I prefer DC's heroes because they are the epitome of all that is good and what a hero should be. But I prefer Marvel's villains because you can empathize with them. And we see Wilson Fisk explaining to Vanessa what his motivations are and why he feels like he has to get his hands dirty because money and influence isn't always enough. And he wants to rebuild Hell's Kitchen. Then in talking about rebuilding Hell's Kitchen and fixing it, how sincere do you think Wilson Fisk is in that, or do you think that he's just placating Vanessa? I think he, I think he's sincere. I, I at the very least, think that D'Onofrio is playing him as, as sincere. Um, I think he, uh, it's uh, you know, and we, uh, the three of us, we know wrestling well enough to get this reference. It's, it's the best kind of heel in wrestling that he believes exactly what his motivations or what he says his motivations are, even if they're obviously not right, even if they're obviously, you know, make him a terrible person. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's a great thing, and, and, and that follows from, from the comic. Um, you know, um, Wilson Fisk, in, in, even in the comics, has always been that guy who thinks, you know, he knows what's best and he's he's entitled to what he, you know, what he's striving for and what he's trying to do. Um, I think he, you know, I think up to a certain point he believes that he's doing the right thing and, you know, by any means necessary. And um, we, we see this point in in you know the character's existence where he is he still thinks he's the good guy or he still believes that he's the good guy even though what he's doing is obviously you know he's doing some terrible things and he's in league with some terrible people Robert do you 
prefer your villains to be humanized and, and explained in a way that we can empathize with them the way they've done with Fisk in this series? Or do you prefer the big bads that are just over the top and pure evil? Well, I'm glad you asked me because, you know, everyone knows I'm all about villains. Uh, this is... I prefer my villains to be three-dimensional characters. Now, whether that means they are three-dimensionally evil, like the Joker, for example, who, when he's properly, you know, portrayed, whatever the medium, is not a flat character. He's a three-dimensional character. He's just completely evil. Uh, in this case, Fisk is a completely three-dimensional character, uh, more so later in the series when we get some of his backstory, which is equal parts fascinating and horrifying. I just prefer my villains to be well written is all and that uh, the fact that we have some that we can understand where Fisk is coming from is a bonus it doesn't in any way diminish him as a villain it just makes him it's just it's understandable you know um, I'm trying to think of an appropriate comparison here and I'm I'm struggling a little bit uh, I suppose I could go with uh, uh, for fans of horror movies out there, uh, when Jigsaw reveals his motivation uh, in Saw 2, uh, it makes him... You understand uh, Tobin Bell as uh, John Kramer, but it doesn't diminish his, uh, his you know, status as you know, terrifying and murderous and all of these other things. And the fact that we tend to get uh, more empathetic in many ways villains that are three-dimensional characters, I think just speaks to how lazy some writers are because they don't write again, a character like you know Sinestro or the Joker who is a three-dimensional character there's just nothing empathetic or redeeming about them, but they're a fully realized character. It's just easier to try and make them you know more human and diminish them as villains than to try and than to either effectively write them as humans without diminishing them or write a fleshed out uh, but rather uh, or write a fleshed out character that is again fairly static in the sense of they exist within one alignment and thankfully we have the perfect blending of Fisk being a villain who you want to see fail and being a character that you can see his point of view even if you completely disagree with it and kind of hope Daredevil bashes his face in yeah, I think that as we head into the next episode, um, the final episode that we'll talk about tonight, in episode six, you mentioned, you, you know, you want to see Matt bash Fisk's face, and we see the first real interaction between he and Fisk, uh, albeit over a walkie-talkie in, in the bottom of a warehouse, and for all of the chemistry that we have in, in this show, we we see Matt and Foggy, we see Wesley and Fisk, we see uh, Ben Urich, who I think we've not given enough due to, and we'll definitely talk about him in the overall plot of the show, because I think he's been fantastic. Um, and Karen and Rosario Dawson on the show, and even Leland Owsley, um, who if, if you're like me and you saw... Leland Owsley on there the first couple of times and you couldn't quite place where you knew him from. That is the uh, outstanding, outstanding character actor, uh, Bob Gunton, who is best known as the evil warden from the Shawshank Redemption. It took me a couple episodes to place him and once I did, it clicked and I was like, oh, okay, still a bad guy, always a bad guy. Um, 
but we, we I think his next most him. famous role would be as the uh, police chief in Demolition Man, wouldn't it? Uh, and again, I, I, regardless of the quality of the movie, I, I enjoy seeing him no matter what he's doing. Um, but we get the dynamic that so many great hero and villain combinations have had on screen. Um, whether it's Christopher Reeves and, and Gene Hackman, whether it's Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, whether it's Christian Bale and Heath Ledger, um, whether it's uh, the complete absence of chemistry between Ben Affleck and Colin Farrell. Um, I think that we see the beginning of, of something very good um, between Matt Murdock and Wilson Fisk on this series, and I'm excited to see it. Uh, eventually come to blows is, uh, and we really have no other option for it to come to blows. But to me, this felt, and I understand that I'm I'm stepping on hallowed ground here. This episode to me felt like it was taking a page out of the Breaking Bad playbook, and that it just kept backing our main character deeper and deeper and deeper into a corner leaving him a very improbable exit to fight another day. Uh, just a, a general reference to the to the pacing and and to the the general tone of this episode, Ben. What what are your thoughts on it? If this were a show that was if this were a show that was on uh network T V, you know, or, you know, cable, anything, you know, that has uh seasons where the episodes would would come every week Episode six would be the mid-season finale. Um, episode six built to a lot, to a couple of very significant things, and like you said, it, the, the, it builds the stakes uh, with um, what Matt is faced with. He's got to deal with this, uh, you know, with this Russian mobster that he clearly is disgusted by. Um, he wants to, you know, he. he probably does want to kill him he won't do it but uh you know he he kind of wants to it builds you know that sort of tension you know the cops are closing in um actually this 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 episode reminded me a lot of another uh frank miller written comic which is issue three of batman year one that has a similar situation where Batman is trapped in a warehouse and a corrupt, you know, SWAT team is closing in on him and he's got to kind of fight his way out with, you know, with a, uh, I think he, he had been shot in the leg and, and the arm. He's, he's trying to fight his way out with one leg and one arm and only a handful of, of weapons. Uh, this seemed pretty similar to that. It seemed like a little bit of a callback to that. And the tension with that is built. Um, and then we get the first interaction of any kind in the series between Matt and Wilson Fisk, and it's just by by radio. And they don't, you know, it's a it's, it's basically a Kirk and Khan moment where they don't they're not in the same place with each other, but they're communicating, and it the, the chemistry is still there. It's still. Uh, you know, it's still captivating. Like you know, these two play playing off each other, and they're they're nowhere near each other. Uh, that whole sequence, and then you know, Fisk just you know lets all hell loose, 
and you know cops start dying and and uh you know they they basically you know matt has to fight his way out you know into the sewers to escape it's uh you know if this were a network show and that was the mid-season finale that would have been you know that would have been a game changer right there and it would it would have had you you know on the edge of your seat for what was coming next robert in watching this episode um did at some point because to me it, at a couple there were just a couple of moments where i thought eh. Uh, overall very good episode i've enjoyed everything in the series but in, in episode six to me there were a couple of moments where it felt like they were pushing things just a little bit too far the, that it was becoming uh, a little bit comic bookish in that they were going above and beyond the the realm of uh, believability that they had established through the first five episodes did you feel like this episode maybe lost its way for just a moment or two at a couple of points well, my big gripe with this episode uh, is really the amount of corruption they display within the police precinct that responds to... I mean, look, I get that there are corrupt cops. I, I get that. And I get that we're dealing with a corrupt subsection of New York City within this fictional world, and Fisk has you know nearly unlimited resources, so on and so forth. I, I understand that. You have you know the dirty detectives, which I'm okay with. Yeah, I just it bothered me a little bit that those two detectives could lead a group of other officers that one would assume is at least ten to fifteen strong. You're investigating the site of an explosion, and one of them can very casually shout out to everyone else if you see anyone alive, shoot them in the head, and no one has a problem. That again, you have met all of like two honest police officers in the entirety of this season this far, and I believe through the rest of it. And one of them in this episode is stabbed by a SWAT officer in the neck. That one, it strained my believability because, you know, it, and part of this is due to the fact that we're dealing with a subset of a larger group. You know, Hell's Kitchen does not have the Hell's Kitchen PD. They're part of the New York Police Department, which is answerable to a whole other string of, you know, in chain of command. And I just, I, I can't get my head around everyone. I mean, even in Gotham, where, you know, every you know, theoretically everyone is corrupt, you have enough honest, good, intelligent you know, people trying to do the right thing to counterbalance and make it believable. In this, it seems like that entire precinct is on the take, except the desk sergeant and the guy who's been on the job for two months and again subsequently is nearly decapitated. And, and that one bothered me. I, I get what you're saying about becoming a bit too comic-y. Uh, elements of the final sequence in particular, they fall through a warehouse floor, uh, which is a substantial fall. And this is not, you know, somebody falling through and getting right back up. This clearly impacts these people. But And then the final sequence uh, in the access tunnels, I see a bit of that. You know, it's one thing for Matt to single-handedly take down a couple of detectives with handguns taking down trained SWAT officers with fully automatic AR-15s. I'm scratching my head just a little bit at that one. Well, now I see where you're coming from with as far as the uh, the whole corruption, uh, you know, the police corruption thing. Here's the thing about that, and I, I you know, I, I've read, you know, I've read true crime books, and I, I, I've, I know a little bit about that sort of thing, and I've read 
accounts from people who have actually like been in the NYPD and things like that. And here's the thing: when you have a system that that is you know largely corrupt, it's not necessarily fully corrupt. But the problem is, it's it's so entrenched and it's it, it reaches the highest levels. Uh, you know, it, it so at such a high level that you know they're they are you know you'll have your your cops that are not necessarily dirty but they'll go along to get along you know even the clean cops won't rat on the dirty ones because then you know then they're going to get either there'll be consequences for that i'm not saying that's a 100 percent justification for you know how things play out in this episode but it's something that's kind of in the back of my mind when when it comes to that sort of thing like um you know even to once again, going back to another Frank Miller influenced, uh, you know, bit of uh, bit of work in, in Batman Begins, where, uh, you know, um, where Gordon uh, at at the towards the beginning of that movie, where um, he's he's partnered with with Flash, who is who is very corrupt. And, um, you know, he, you know, Flash takes the bribe, but Gordon won't. And he tells him, you know, uh, you know, um you know, they see you. You're not taking take a taste makes the rest of us a little bit nervous. And his response is, "I'm no rat." But and besides, in a town this bent, who's there to rat to anyway? Um, yeah, I, I looked at it along those lines. Like even the cops that are not 100%, you know, in Fisk's pocket would never like go against the ones that clearly are, because then they're they're the target. Um, like I said, that's that's one way of looking at it. That's just something that, that had crossed my mind at the time, and and that's that's kind of how I rationalized it. This episode, we see, I think the other thing, when we talk about it getting too comic-y, uh, to this point, we've had very subtle allusions to what Matt is able to do with his additional senses or his heightened senses. You know, he, he'll tell Claire, hey, there's somebody going door-to-door in the apartment building. He's wearing just a ton of terrible cologne. Okay, we get it. We've, we've not been over it. We've, we've gotten a glimpse of the way Matt quote-unquote sees things. What really did it for me in this one was when she asks him if there's anything in the room he can use and he just stops. And he starts listing pretty much everything that's in the room without moving, without turning, without anything at all. And I thought, okay, we we may be going a little too far here, guys. I, I didn't mind the, the, the voice-guided uh, field surgery, but the being able to echolocate everything in the room without moving was a bit of a stretch for me. Uh, how far can they push Matt's powers, Ben, without, or his abilities? I don't even know if you want to call them powers. How far can they push his abilities without crossing the line into being hokey? I think they did a fine job. Actually, for the most part in this series, a lot of his, his enhanced sort of senses, I think they underplay a lot. Um, the Especially, you know, we see the the POV of like the radar sense which was a big thing in the in the movie and it's a big thing in the comics we see that exactly once and it's in um it's in episode 5 um you know as you know I'm 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 a comic book guy and I have no big issues with when things get more into the into the comic book realm and things get a little bit more fantastic even a show even a series that's that's clearly much more grounded in reality like this one i like seeing you know things kind of push that push against that um what i know about the comic book stuff uh i know that i know that the the rec- uh, radar sense that that 
that uh, Murdoch has, um, it it works. It actually does work a full 360 degrees around his body. Um, whether or not that was an allusion to that, uh, w- whether or not that was something that they implemented, you know, in that scene without actually having to say it and, and, and explain it, I don't know. I'd like to think that because, you know, the, the, the writers and the, and the showrunners are pretty on the ball with everything else related to Daredevil. They, they, you know, for all their, you know, for all their keeping everything grounded in, in, in a stare, the type of reality that they've established, they do a really good job of keeping, you know, keeping true to a lot of the core elements of the comic, even the more fantastical ones. So, I didn't, I didn't necessarily find it hokey. I didn't necessarily have a problem with with how far they they pushed it in that instance. It's just, um, and and in the previous episode, he went a long way towards explaining that he. He basically he he tends to use a lot of his senses all at the same time to compensate for his lack of eyesight, um, which can, which is kind of gives you plot leeway to explain why he's able to do some of the things that he does. But it, it, given what we know about what he's able to do, it also makes sense that uh, he can that that he'll do those sorts of things and he'll be able to do those sorts of things. Robert, there at the end of the episode, that bullseye. I don't think it was. I think that was just a SWAT sniper on payroll. Uh, Bulls I would not have missed. And without, I can say this, uh, the detective that he shot, uh, the white guy of the two corrupt detectives, he is not dead uh, at the end of that episode. I, I don't want to say one way or the other what happens further down the line, but... At the end of this episode, he is still very much alive, and Bullseye would not have missed. Okay, I think I think that's fair. Um, I, I personally didn't catch it, but in uh, reading some reviews and making sure that I understood, you know, exactly what we'd be talking about tonight, uh, someone mentioned that the uh, the sniper had an ace of spades on him. Did did either of you catch that? I was not looking for that, but I might have to double check that. I caught it in a second. Okay. Then it might be. You know, again, I just... My reasoning is Bullseye doesn't miss, but uh, by the same token, you can say he did, in fact, hit the target. So, I I don't know. That was my perspective, but if it is, more power to him. Uh, Bullseye's a fun character, and he would be very interesting in, uh, especially in this kind of grounded-in-reality series, instead of, you know... Much as I had some fun with Colin Farrell in the Daredevil movie, drinking and throwing a bunch of you know bullseyes with darts and then killing someone with a paper cl- with a series of paper clips thrown into his throat, uh, I think Bullseye in you know, the real world, for want of a better phrase, certainly a more realistic world, is a very interesting character if they can do him right. And I have nothing but confidence in the showrunners for this show. Yeah, and, and again, if I agree with you, if that was there, or if that was Bullseye, then more power to him. It's certainly a nice way to introduce the character and give him a bit of a backstory rather than simply being a maniacal assassin. Um, if it's someone that starts out in the employee of Wilson Fisk and then turns into his own thug and with his own motives to take down Daredevil, then fantastic. And if not, then, you know, congrats to the sniper guy for getting an extra paycheck for shooting dirty cops. Um, 
looking at the first six episodes as a whole, um, Ben, you mentioned that this would have been the mid-season break if this were a traditional television show. Uh, how does this stack up for you against other offerings from Netflix and how the show has been paced versus something like, say, House of Cards? I haven't, well, I haven't seen House of Cards, unfortunately. It's on the long list of things I need to catch up on. As, you know, as the first six episodes, I think... I think you have a good base and a good starting point and you basically get the audience going and you, and and you get people excited to see what happens next. If this were let's say if if Netflix just released the first 6 episodes and told you we're going to give you these first 6 episodes all at the same time and then we're going to give you the next, you know, the final 7, you know, 6 months from now or whatever, 3 4 five, six months from now, whatever the case may be, hypothetically, um, you would have, I think you'd have people, you know, chomping at the bit to like, you know, we got to know what happens next. The the, the, the position that uh, Fisk leaves, uh, leaves Daredevil in at the end of this episode is he's, you know, public enemy number one. He's, he's on the run. He's, he's been, uh, he, he's been framed for possibly the murders of several police officers or what we thought was the murders of several police officers. Um, you know, he's manipulated the media. He's manipulated the police. He's, he's manipulated everything, you know, in his favor. And now, uh, Matt is is truly like the underdog, and he's he's on the run, and his back's against the wall. And you know, audiences we tend to like seeing you know our heroes fight back from from these kind of insurmountable odds. So uh, I think it did a good job of first of all establishing all the characters, telling everything you needed to know about them and what they are and what they're doing and what their motivations are, and then start start sort of. Um, moving the chess pieces around and giving you a little giving you a taste of, you know, the end game and where it's going, but not so much that you don't want to see what's ha- what's going to happen next. Uh, I do want to talk about Ben Yurick and, and what he brings uh to this show. I, I think that his character very much serves as uh, a link to the common man uh, as one of us watching all of this unfold around him and trying to make sense of it all. Ben, uh, Ben Yurick's character is someone who plays key parts in the Marvel Universe uh, almost unintentionally. Uh, and he, he's a very troubled character. He beats himself up. He's a workaholic. What's your opinion of the portrayal uh, of Ben Yurick so far on Daredevil? Um, it's kind of funny um, how he how he's played in the show versus um, how he's uh, been played you know been played at, at times in the comic. Uh, in the comic in the Marvel universe, he's actually uh, an employee at the Daily Bugle, and he he pops up in Spider Man from time to time. Um, and it's always funny you know watching him interact with like J Jonah Jameson and that sort of thing. Um, in in the show. It's, I mentioned this because in the show he he kind of serves the purpose. He's he's kind of the uh, almost like the moral compass for everybody else. Um, you know, Matt Murdock he means well and he you know he tries to do the right thing and he intends to do the right thing. For the most part, he does do the right thing. But at the end of the day, he's a guy who, when he's not being a lawyer, he's dressing up in a costume and beating the hell out of criminals. 
Um, you know, Ben Urich uh, has, fills the the role of you know the guy that that uh, that's kind of the observer. He sees everything that's going on, and uh, you know he 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 sort of keeps in line the people who, you know, by being an, an investigative reporter and exposing the truth, he, he keeps in line the people who can be kept in line and the people who can't, who are too corrupt, who are too far gone, who are too powerful and too, uh, you know, thinking they're too untouchable to be kept in line. He, ex- he He's the one that, that uh, is the threat of exposure and exposing them for what they really are. And by that way is the only way they can be brought down. So it's a really important role, um, and I say that because, you know, in Spider-Man, that, that was actually, uh, it, it's funny because uh, uh, Robbie Robertson uh, kind of filled that role in Spider-Man with, with Ben Urich kind of being, you know, a maverick journalist and that. Um, in, uh, in, in Daredevil, and in, in, to a lesser extent in the comics, but very much in the show, he fills that role. He's he's everybody's conscience and he's everybody's moral compass. And and he you know it's 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 a great portrayal. Uh, it's a great you know it's a great character to have uh, you know for all of these morally ambiguous characters that are that are running around doing their own thing and and feeling fully justified in what they're doing to have somebody say, well maybe this is not as uh, you know maybe you shouldn't be as sure of yourself that you're doing the right thing as you think you are. I think what I like so much about Ben Urich is he's a good guy, but he's also a realist in many ways, and that is something that in these show, in shows like this you need someone as the anchor, you know, whoever it happens to be. Uh, I mean, with with Iron Man, you had kind of Happy Hogan uh, for a few scenes, as you know, or uh, James Rhodey as kind of an anchor, you know, just let's pull it back a little bit here, let's look at things from a different perspective. And everyone has one, you know, which is great about all of these char- about all of these, you know, whatever the property is. There's always someone to kind of, you know, be the voice of reason in many ways. Because uh, especially uh, Karen Page is, you know, borderline obsessed with trying to bring down Fisk, and not that I blame her, mind you, but she constantly goes to Ben with, you know, information that she has, or trying to get him to write things, and he's constantly having to say. Yeah, maybe it makes sense, but I can't write this because I'll be sued. There are standards. There are you know, sources. I have to be able to defend this in court if necessary. And you're bringing me nothing of that nature. You have things that make sense to you, but I can't write from a completely biased perspective or people won't buy this. And that's actually kind of counterpointed in a lot of ways with uh, this... Uh, we already talked about it, but the conversation between Matt and Fisk over the radio, uh, which is just a brilliant bit of writing, directing, the way it's all put together, really well done. But Fisk says, I'm going to blame you for everything that's gone wrong tonight with this whole neighborhood, and people will buy it. And Matt's response is, do you really think people are going to buy that? (laughs) Fisk says, yes. Look at you. You're wearing a mask. You assault people with your bare hands. I've got you on tape assaulting police officers. Now they're going to blame you for everything. You know, this, you know, no one's going to take your place once you fall. The city's going to burn you in effigy. Your name is going to be mud. <laughs> 
And you can kind of slowly see that realization come over, Matt, as in the position he's in right now is the worst possible one. And it actually plays into the next few episodes, the, you know, conflict about whether or not, you know, the man in the mask is a good, you know, what side of the fence is he on? All the stuff like that. It actually, this episode uh, six rather ends on a, really important note for the rest of the series. It ends with, you know, the Russian that he's tried to save, sacrificing himself. He's dying anyway, by and large. But he's spent quite a few minutes telling Matt uh, that the only way you're going to beat Fisk is to kill him. You will never get him convicted. You will never get him held for long enough to get him convicted. The only way this ends is if he dies. And that sets up the next arc, uh, the next major arc for the for the following three episodes. It's just you know where you know, Matt trying to come to grips with this. This this actually leads into them reintroducing the priest from episode one. Uh, the you know, the moral challenge of you know, do I you know, am I prepared to kill this man is a big part of the rest of the season actually. And Matt dealing with, you know, the conflict there and the uh, kind of prototypical Catholic guilt. You know, no offense to the Catholics out there. Uh, But it's his, this is kind of the gauntlet being thrown down by someone who is willing to kill, that if you want to stop this, you have to kill him. And we get quite a few episodes of him trying to come to grips with that. And again, it foreshadows and sets up a lot of important stuff to come. Uh, but now Ben as the moral center, as kind of the anchor to reality, to what you can do, what you can say, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, the actor does a phenomenal job. He's very well written. Uh, and again, he's a fully fleshed out character with his own motivations and issues. And, you know, you agree with him more often than not. But every now and then, you know, things happen in his life that may, might run counter to what we're seeing, you know, our you know, three main protagonists try to do. But we understand where he's coming from every single time, and a really fantastic portrayal. A very well-written character as well. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed him tremendously so far on the show, and look forward to seeing what the second half of the season brings for him. Uh, that that sort of is a nice place to wrap up our recap of the second quarter of the season. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network four-part review of the Netflix slash Marvel series Daredevil. I am your host, Gavin Napier. Joining me on the podcast, on the review tonight, is the namesake of the Radulich and Broadcasting Network, Mr. Mark Radulich himself. Mark, how are you this evening? I'm doing just dandy. I turned off Iron Man 2 for this, and I'm excited to talk about and kick him again, and and all of that good stuff. I, I love these three episodes. I'm chopping up a bit. Also joining us tonight, emerging from the wilderness of the far west, we have the one and only intellectual and eloquent Sean Comer. Sean, welcome back to the Rattlech and Broadcasting Network. Howdy, guys. Uh, Sean, real quickly, since this is the first time that you have joined us for the reviews of this series, you said you love this show. What is it uh, yeah, about show that makes you love it so much? Uh, well, for one thing, it absolutely manages to, within the space of the first two episodes, shame even the few redeeming aspects 
of the 2003 Fox movie just absolutely blows it utterly out in the water, out of the water. It's proof that unlike DC, which is very one note, very monochrome and how they seem to treat every single last one of their characters, it shows that not only does Marvel have a lot of tools in their belt in terms of how they can frame each individual character's world, but it also shows that Disney, for all its family friendliness as an overall corporation and a brand, had no intention whatsoever of handcuffing Marvel. That they were just going to just let them fly and color this world the way they felt that it needed to be. Because, you know, you can't you can't do Daredevil in the same vein you would do Captain America, just like you couldn't do Iron Man in the same vein you would do Thor. You have to really get down to the soul of each property and of each character. And with this, they went right to the very finest hours of the series, and that was Frank Miller's work on The Man Without Fear. Generally speaking, it's just, it's more versatility. It's more truth to everything that I really wanted to see out of the character and everything that I felt like every single one of these characters should be. Episode 7 of Daredevil is probably my favorite episode of the series so far. Uh, of, Of all of the nine episodes that we will have recapped through tonight, uh, episode seven is probably my personal favorite. And the reason that it's my personal favorite, Sean, is because of the wonderful performance from one Scott Glenn. Uh, Scott Glenn is a character actor <clears throat> that will probably never be called upon to carry the day as the heroic lead in a motion picture that is a blockbuster or a long-running television show. However... In situations like Episode 7 of Daredevil, where we see him appear as Matt Murdock's mentor, Stick, he excels. Um, He becomes a a force of personality that just takes over the screen, and he is the perfect asshole to Matt Murdock's striving hero. We see some background between Matt Murdock and Stick. We see him involved with Matt at a very early age in the orphanage and helping Matt channel the heightened senses that are starting to overwhelm him a bit. Uh, What were your general thoughts on this episode and Scott Glenn's performance? I think that it's so much better than really trying to do just a straight-up, from the very, very way-back exposition dump origin story, because... I like flashbacks. I like how much, well, much like the way they were used in Lost, uh, the way they put you inside the head of the character they're supposed to be focused upon. You could really tell from the first tone of their interaction that it was going to end up roughly how it did right down to uh, Matt finding the crushed bracelet that he thought Stick had thrown away. Even that part was just was just a little bit on the obvious side. Overall, I like how it reflects on everything that Matt is currently right now both determined not to be, but also that he's that he's really struggling not to be. It's almost like you took like if you took Matt Murdock from this series 
and somehow via some wacky, horrible abomination of an Elseworlds tale paired him with Stephen Amell's Oliver Queen from the first season of Arrow. It's like you paired those two and you got to have them really bounce pretty well off of each other. And it, it, it did include one surprise, uh, the surprise that ultimately they did they did reveal at one point that, oh yeah, as a matter of fact, yes, Stick did in fact kill a kid, which yeah, I admit, I didn't see coming. I didn't think they would actually go that far. Mark, Sean mentioned a, a bit of predictability and, and how the ending was a, was fairly obvious. Do you find some comfort in being able to know where things are going? Because I agree with Sean that it was obvious in in where we were heading with the episode, right down to the moment with the bracelet that he finds that he thought had long since been destroyed or carelessly tossed away. I didn't so much mind knowing where we were going because I, it made me want to see what the journey to get there was. Do you mind some predictability in a series like this? No, I mean, I'm, I don't... You guys are much, much quicker at seeing some of the twists and turns coming than I do. I'm not to say that I'm completely floored, but I'm just not, I'm just not actively thinking about what the next thing is going to be or where are they going with this. I sort of watch rather passively, um, and that might be because I'm choosing to watch this late at night, um, you know, in bed or whatever. But um, I will tell you this, no matter, even if I know what the spoilers are, even if I know something's coming or I can predict something is coming, a performance is a performance. Um, you know, a, uh, a piece of media uh, entertainment, if it's quality, I'll still, I'll enjoy it. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't need to be surprised. Um, I need to be entertained. So I'm good. I, I was good with it. Even if I, there were certain times where, um, like, like Family Guy or something like that, I can kind of see some of that stuff coming. Um, and I'll even say it to Melissa. I'll be like, oh, go watch. This is what's going to happen. Oh, there it is. But I still laugh. Um, yeah. <laughs> Criticize me all you will. But I still laugh at Family Guy even when I, even when I see the joke coming or I see the, the, the twist in the plot. Well, the other elements of this episode that we're introduced to are the Black Sky and what will presumably become the Ninja Clan of the Hand. Uh, we see a lot of mysticism, some some Middle Eastern mysticism being introduced to the mythology and the lore of the Daredevil character. The, the most clever fan service you'll see throughout this is the stuff that really only fairly serious Daredevil fans are going to spot right off the back right off the bat, and that, to be perfectly honest, with the exception of one or two moments, I needed a YouTube video to point out to me. I didn't get the little possible kind of maybe sort of wink at bullseye, but I did pick off pick up on the definite reference to uh, Matt and Electra already being acquainted by this point from one of the flashbacks. It kept everything very focused. In, in this series, they've hinted at a couple things that are to come, but for the most part, they've done it largely in passing. There, there are no frequent appearances by the hand because it allows them to just focus strictly on Matt and Fisk. Matt and Fisk. That's what it's coming down to for this 13 episode. 
episode eight of Daredevil, which I believe, Mark, you have referenced as your favorite episode. Um, yeah, this one and this one in ten, uh, Nelson versus Murdoch, I might are they're, they're tied for the two best episodes of the season. Now, for me, the words "kick him again" have <laughs> become just the best thing ever. Um, I, I never <laughs> thought I could love a sentence as much as I love those three words. Or keep kicking him, kick him again. You know, it's it's just beautiful to watch a child be corrupted. Uh, but before we really dive into the meat of this episode, is this Vincent? Is this episode Vincent D'Onofrio's heavy push for a, an Emmy in this series? Because we've seen that the Emmy board or the the nominees are willing to include people from Netflix series. Okay, and let, me, let me in here. If Vincent D'Onofrio doesn't get an Emmy nomination, at least a nomination, not insisting that he win, but if he doesn't get an Emmy nomination for that episode, if not the entire series, then the world is corrupt and there is no God. If I understand how the Emmys work, and please, if either of you know differently, correct me, but my understanding is that each nomination for an Emmy is for an individual episode of a television series. Uh, For example, if The Simpsons are nominated for Best Animated, then they're not actually winning for their entire season. They're winning for a particular episode that they have submitted to the Emmy board. Is is that correct? I believe you are correct. In in that case, then I'm with Mark. If, If there's not a nomination forthcoming for this episode, then... Uh, it's hard to take things seriously. Uh, Mark, since this is your favorite episode of the series to date, um, why don't you expound on it a little bit for the listeners and and talk about why you love it so much? Um, Well, obviously the performances are wonderful. I like the fact that uh, Daredevil is television jujitsu at its finest. There's no wasted motion. They spent an entire episode of this man buying a painting, and there's a payoff for the painting. There was nothing wasted there. And I loved it. I loved the fact that he bought the painting because it reminded him of the wall that his father used to make him look at as punishment when he was in timeout. Um, I, I absolutely love that time. I love the fact that they set him up in the beginning instead of having this routine, and by the end of it, it's upended with Vanessa, who tells him, you know, uh, you know, who basically gives him the Adrian speech in Rocky Three. You know, get out there and win. Don't worry about what you're going to lose. It's, it's just fight, for God's sakes. I, I loved, so there's a lot of juxtaposition and things paying off, and that's, that, that's the richness of storytelling that draws me in and makes me want to do these kinds of podcasts and talk about it with like-minded folk, I still, it's, it's watching something like that, it get, gets me excited about television and movies. Um, specifically, who hasn't had an experience with a bully, you know, or known somebody who had an experience with a bully? By the same token, who hasn't had an experience um, either themselves personally or through someone that they knew with an abusive parent? Um, you know, we've all, if you didn't experience it yourself, I'm sure you knew somebody. And those issues hit home with me. There were elements and themes in this episode that reached out and grabbed me and drew me in on top of 
the richness of storytelling and the performances and the direction. Um, one of the things that I keyed into about this episode especially, but this series, is how vulnerable they made Wilson Fisk. Because I don't remember him being much of a character in the Marvel Universe other than he was a menacing figure. He can kick the shit out of, like, Spider-Man somehow, you know, in Daredevil in a fist fight. And he, you know, and he was a you know, corrupted bad guy. And by no means am I tearing down the kingpin. I just don't remember him showing a whole lot of vulnerability. I don't remember him being a, I don't, from what I've read, um, and mind you, I've read comic books years and years ago, but what I knew of the kingpin, he wasn't all that interesting of a character. Um, they took whatever that was, and maybe there was something there, and gave this guy so many dimensions. And he's, you know, and it's, it's weird because you find yourself rooting for him to a point, and then you have to be reminded, wait, he's a corrupted, terrible human being who's, uh, you know, de- who, who is uh, trying to remake Hell's Kitchen uh, with, you know, w- with heroin funds. So, you know, and he's killing people left and right. But for a moment, for 60 minutes of that show, he's, the, he's this kid whose father... It is psychologically torturing to the point where he gets hit, he hits him with a hammer. You know he has to cross that line, and uh, I have to say, overall, this was as much the Daredevil season as it was the Wilson Fisk season. I mean, he wasn't just a bad guy. This is you know this is, he kind of reminds me of Jack Nicholson's Joker from Tim Burton's Batman. You could have renamed the damn thing Kingpin, and it would have been just as good a show. He's that good of a character, and that episode exemplified that. Um, for the record, Kingpin in the comic books is not just an average schmuck that works his way up the, the ladder of the New York City mafia scene. Uh, Kingpin, as we are introduced to him in the Marvel Universe, has solidified his place as a villain already, which was the nature of the comic when these characters were introduced there was no time to develop kingpin and show you where he came from from the ground up you had the first issue of daredevil you needed a bad guy for him and you got the kingpin what we get is the opportunity for the first time to really give you a backstory on wilson fisk that's available to the mass media it's been touched upon in the comics it's been delved into from time to time but this is the first at length in-depth retelling of where the kingpin came from he also in the comics has uh, a somewhat heightened strength somewhat uh, above human capacity for strength and ability to endure uh, punishment he's certainly not a a demigod level superhero that belongs in the avengers but he's also not just a big fat guy he's he has some abilities as well you, you ask if this is a great bid for Vincent D'Onofrio to get an Emmy nomination? Oh, hell yes. You could actually take out Matt, Foggy, Karen, Ben, just remove them from it all together and just reduce it to being more or less a short film about Wilson Fisk, and you would still have something that would have me absolutely glued to the screen, and I really... Uh, no disrespect intended to any to any of the other performers, but I wouldn't miss any of them. You could just make the whole thing 
Vanessa and Fisk and the flashbacks. And you've got a highlight of the entire series. All that being said, I think that as a character, if you're going to compare Fisk to anybody, he's a lesser Lex Luthor. Mm. But uh, but on the other hand, uh, in terms of his general purpose, he's that guy who, yeah, he's a physical, hand-to-hand, mostly match for a lot of people. But his real strength is in the fact that tactically, mentally, as a strategist, um, but that's a good description of him. And also he has going for him that he's determined to save Hell's Kitchen seemingly from itself by any means necessary, even if he has to do it by force and crossing lines that the vigilantes and the police and politicians won't cross or can't cross. Uh, He's willing to do it because he feels he's doing it for the right reasons. When you boil all that down, you really have not the kingpin, but you have a Wilson Fisk that I don't think even if he had lived, you could have gotten Michael Clark Duncan to play because he just wouldn't be as effective. He he wouldn't bring out that same vulnerability and awkwardness, and you wouldn't get to enjoy that progression right up to his press conference when he emerges from his shell. And that's when we really start to see the very first first inklings of him truly becoming the kingpin when he's able to, to hold himself up there that proudly. Well, Mark, I know you're a, a big fan of a show called The Wire. And in the flashbacks to Wilson Fisk's childhood, we see uh, a familiar face from The Wire. Dominic Lombardozzi shows up and plays the verbally abusive, controlling, uh, prototypical, hard-ass 70s guy. And he's pretty much ruining his wife and child's life along with his own by getting in bed with the mob, taking out loans that he'll never be able to pay back. And he's a disgusting human being. But in spite of all of this, in spite of all of this guy's character flaws, in spite of all of the negative traits about him, you still want to see him kick that kid's ass that's been running him down. Because he walks up to the kid, kid's just got this smug look on his face. And he's like, yeah, so what are you going to do? And you, for all of the uselessness of Wilson Fisk's father as a person, you still want to see him lay into this punk kid. And in I doing been, so... I have been known to turn ahead. to my coworker and ask, how much prison time am I going to get for punching, a five, for punching a five-year-old? So, yeah, I saw where he was coming from. I sympathize. Um, But in doing so, he unlocks something inside of young Wilson. Um, In forcing Wilson to embrace this rage and act upon it, he's unknowingly setting the dominoes in place that will fall towards his own demise. When young Wilson says, caves in the back of his head with a hammer and then continues beating him, until he's a twitching, bloody mess on the floor that his mother has to hack in bits with a saw. This was the Marvel Universe, as it's been presented to us in cinematic form, is a very sanitized place. It's bright lights, it's it's flashy surfaces, it's shiny things, 
It's well-choreographed action sequences, and even the really gritty part, like Captain America and Bucky storming into World War II, are very, very sanitized. This is not sanitized in any way. This is this is the Marvel Cinematic Universe getting very dark and very dirty very quickly. What what further depths of depravity do you think we can hit in this series? How shocked were you that they went this far in, in an episode of a Marvel sponsored series? Um, I wasn't. I, I in all honesty, and that's what that's what led to my initial statements of. There are some characters in the Marvel pantheon that just don't lend themselves to big summer blockbusters where that's unacceptable, um, unless you're watching DC films. Uh, but, you know, look, there are just so many grim characters, you know, with gritty stuff going on in the Marvel Universe that um, is acceptable on television. I mean, if you look at the HBO series, you know, Oz, The Wire... Uh, to an extremely lesser extent, Treme, from what people tell me, True Detective, and then, you know, draw back from that a little bit, AMC with Breaking Bad, you know, all these uh, FX shows, The Shield, Justified, Sons of Anarchy, uh, it's it's expected at this point. Television is the medium for which you can uh, dig into the muck and mire and pull out some pretty pretty grotesque stuff. I mean, for God's sake, there's a tele- there's a network television show, it's a cable television show called American Horror Story, which looks gross, by the way. Um, and then another one called The Strain. So it's just it's widely accepted and ex- almost expected, I think, for the television medium to give you uh, something you know short of a strong R, you know, in its contact, um, content. So I think the, your, your question sort of implies that there are people at Marvel, you know, who are like, oh, we've got to keep everything kid-friendly. And I don't think that that's true. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm reading you wrong, but I feel like there's people at Marvel who are chopping at the bit to get more stuff like this out there who realize that, uh, unlike George Lucas did, apparently, that their fans are not just kids. It's not just kids out there reading comic books. Uh, you have the entire uh, realm of adults. And an older fan, my father, still reads comic books. And he's in his 60s, almost 70 years old. He goes to see these movies. He'll watch Daredevil on Netflix. He watches fucking everything on Netflix. He's watching Law and Order. So when you've got... Uh, five to seventy to work with. If you're not taking some of your content and sort of gearing it and, and using TV for its maximum potential to give the elder folks watching your product something they can really bite their teeth into, you're wasting your resources. So I, I am not surprised at all, and I'm eager to see what other tricks they pull out of the hat. Well, for me, this episode was as much about planting seeds for the future as it was about Wilson Fisk or anything else because we see Leland Owsley getting a protective suit made uh, by the man who will eventually become uh, the gladiator in Marvel mythology and and a man who is the outfitter to the supervillains. We see Madame Gal be shamed. Uh, We see Nobu intimidated. We see Layers uh, coming into the, the crime structure of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, we see 
Wilson Fisk takes steps towards becoming the king's kingpin as he starts to vary his wardrobe. He starts to find a little bit of confidence. He switches up the cufflinks. So for me, this is a huge episode, not just because of what we see uh, from Wilson Fisk and his character development, but from what we see that can potentially set the table for a lot of, excuse me, a lot of stuff coming down the line. Our final episode for tonight, episode nine, uh, many people have, uh, when reviewing the series, looking at critics, looking at various reviews, refer to this as the best episode of the series. And while I enjoyed it, I don't know that I would go quite that far. I will say that, to me, Episode 9 felt very much like a mid-season break episode of Breaking Bad, in that you knew from the word go with the episode what you were getting and what you were heading towards. They're they're setting the table for you for this knockdown, drag-out fight between Matt Murdock and this red ninja who looks frighteningly like the hand ninjas from the comic book, who is eventually revealed to be Nobu. We see uh, this very bloody fight, and while the episode sets you up to be prepared for this fight between Matt and Nobu to be the theme and the climax of the episode, we get to the fight between Matt and Nobu's ending and realize that's not the climax at all. And if this were on network television, if this were on AMC, when episode nine was over, you would have to wait six months or a year and a half or however long it took us to produce another two episodes of Mad Men to see the next episode and to see the next development. Sean, the pacing of this episode I did think was excellent, and to me it was probably the best paced episode of the series that I've seen so far. I'm only I've only up watched up to episode ten, so I have the final three episodes to watch. However, I do think that this is the best paced episode that I've seen so far. I don't think it had the best fight choreography. I still think that episode two takes that by a mile. Um, But overall, I thought this episode did a very good job of creating some tension, delivering on it, and then pulling through with a nice surprise or two at the end. Uh, On a scale of one to ten, what do you give episode nine? I would give it about a... You know, I'm not sure I'd really rate anything in this series, anything below a 7, but I would rate this about an 8. You're right. The fight choreography doesn't measure up to that of Episode 2. Then again, what I would ask, what the hell in this episode does? That that is the high watermark for choreography in terms of not just this episode, but any action television series that I've seen in a long time. So that's really that's really no knock on Speak of the Devil. What I will say is this. It embodies something that I love about the action of this episode and about the way Matt Murdock is portrayed. Matt gets his ass kicked. He is human that is one of the biggest and most important differences between this and the 20th Century Fox movie attempt. And that's the fact that in that, it's strongly implied that Matt gets his augmented senses as a great result of the chemicals that were spilled on That him. That they really gave him true superhuman powers. In this, 
and throughout the entire series. After every fight scene, you know, for as often as Matt is able to completely out-thug, or out-thug, out-class, half a dozen thugs all around him. After every fight, he ultimately ends up taking a few good shots. And it's, it's not like he's some otherworldly hero that soars off into the, into the night without a scratch, just saying, I must go, my people need me. He, he limps away gasping for breath. And in this, this goes a step further because he gets utterly destroyed. He just barely dispenses with Nobu. And then he goes to take on Fisk himself, and Fisk absolutely smashes him, uh, like uh, just like it's it's hardly a chore, like it's a walk in the park. And Matt basically barely escapes with his life. That's something that you occasionally need to see in a superhero movie for it to stay interesting. It's not interesting if there's never any sense of jeopardy, if you can't carry that off. And this does that so, so very well and and gets across something in the comics, too, and that's that, again, Matt doesn't win every fight. I mean, there are some times when the struggle keeps him kind of barely at about a 500 batting average. And this just makes it all the more important at the end of the series when the two meet again and the fight is so different. And it's also a great episode for just establishing what a force Wilson Fisk really is and how much this newfound confidence is really starting to change him and bring him out of his shell. And again, it's another small step toward us seeing not just Wilson Fisk, but seeing the Kingpin. But, all that also comes at an even greater cost, and that is the fact that at the end of the episode, uh, they keep to what is one of the most important traditions about Daredevil, and that is the fact that he has got, next to Spider-Man, the worst-kept fucking secret identity in the entire Marvel Universe. (laughs) Yeah, because... no, he no, he does. Those two are neck and neck, both in terms of having the shittiest love life and the worst kept secret identities. That you you could not carry off like an Arkham City style story of I know who I know who Matt Murdock is, or I know who Daredevil really is. Okay, and I. I, I could I could go down to the one go down to the one legged meth head dancing for nickels in the corner. I'm pretty sure he probably knows who Daredevil really is. Probably knows who, probably knows who Spider Man is too. Spider Man probably splits him a fiver every other Tuesday. Um, but the good news about it is it builds up well to the next episode when we have to witness Matt fighting the uphill and for a little while losing battle of uh, trying to reconcile this secret life with how long he's kept this secret from his best friend. 
and we kind of start to see a little foreshadowing of what this life he's committed to could ultimately end up costing him. So, I want to add something to what Sean said, just a some minor thing. What I like about this, and, I, and Gavin, you and I have talked before about fighting styles, and when, when I've had you on the long road to ruin, and I've, and I've said to you and Sean, I really don't like an entire movie where everybody is kung fu fighting. It gets boring after a while. I, I like to see some differentiation in the fight choreography. Sometimes I just want to see Roadhouse. You know, I want to see sloppy, drunken boxing. And to that, to that end, one of the things I really I picked up about this was that there are multiple fighting styles throughout this season, and Wilson Fisk has his very own. Like, when he gets physical with somebody, there are very specific things that he does. One of the things that jumped, and, and only because of my, you know, my background with hardcore punk, um, this jumped out at me, but it, but it was an example of something that was very specific to him. There's a point where he's beating on Daredevil at the end of this scene, at the, at the end of this episode, where, you know, it looks like he's, like, doing the gorilla. <laughs> and I expected, like, sick of it all, to, like, jump out behind him and start performing Step Down. Um, if you've seen the video, that's a funny reference. If you haven't, probably have no idea what I'm talking about. In any case, um, yeah, he, like, he just, he's not kung fu fighting. He's not, you know, jumping into, mysteriously into martial arts. He's just brutalizing the people that he physically confronts. Um, you know, and he, he's throwing these, like, long over, overhand punches and just being this huge physical force that makes sense for a guy his size. Um, I, I can tell you being a, you know, a larger than average uh, 30, almost 39-year-old man, in physical confrontations, both, you know, sparring or otherwise, I've always used my weight to my advantage. You know, and that's one of the things that he does. He just leaning into, you know, these ham hock punches and, and you, using his physical mass to, to overpower people. As a contrast to Daredevil, who is live and obviously is trained in martial arts. So it makes for a more interesting uh, fight dynamic when you have two guys going at it with two different styles. Um, it, it, cinematically, it, it makes it more interesting. When, everybody, when it's the fucking Matrix... And everyone's doing the same thing. After a while, it gets a bit redundant, in my opinion. So hats off to the fight choreographers and the directors for giving me something pretty to watch. Well, if this episode were to be narrated by someone, it would be narrated by the one and only late and great shyster, huckster, salesman extraordinaire himself, Billy Mays. Because once we get through the fight with Nobu, we have our but wait, there's more moment. Where, as you have both alluded to, Wilson Fisk beats the hell out of Matt Murdock. Matt Murdock is full of rage after Miss Cardenas has died. Um, he is full of rage at the fact that Fisk is now untouchable. He is wrestling with the idea of, do I want to kill him or do I have to kill him and what's my responsibility? Um, Matt Murdock is a very angry man and he just wants to take out that rage on Wilson Fisk. He catches a beating as a result. But in, as I mentioned earlier, in true Breaking Bad fashion, Billy Mays can pop right back into the screen and say, but wait, there's more. Because 
in what is the season one equivalent of Hank sitting on the toilet and reading an inscription in a book and the light bulb goes off over his head, we see Foggy uncover Matt's face and the screen goes black. Just a a tremendous job on the part of uh, the directors to throw a few extra surprises in at the end of an episode at a point in the season where it wasn't really completely necessary. Um, how much of the last five minutes of this episode caught you off guard, Mark? Um, well, first of all, I didn't, I did not expect Daredevil to catch such a beating and throw himself willy nilly out a fucking window. (laughs) Um, I, I, in terms of something, uh, something to look at that, that, that jarred me, that jumping out the window to save himself from being murdered by the kingpin, um, is one of those moments that is now burned into my brain. Um, but the, uh, I, you know, like I said, I wasn't, there are a couple of things that have happened throughout this season. We'll, we'll talk about it. You know, certain character deaths, one in particular, uh, certain reveals, you know, to, to go back to what Sean said, the fact that at this point, who doesn't know who Daredevil is, you know, how that hasn't made the bugle front page. I'll never know. Um, so the, I, I would have to say I, I was pretty I was shocked that that's the direct... And again, knowing not a whole lot about the comic, Daredevil was not a comic that I read. Uh, I was shocked that they so soon revealed his identity to Foggy, and I was curious as to what purpose it would serve, what the payoff would be. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, um, the payoff is still a mystery. I mean, granted, there's a whole next episode, um, which you could call a payoff, but I would tell... But I I would... I would uh, reserve judgment that there has to be more to why they reveal his identity to Foggy than just what they do in the next episode, which is, like I said, an, an outstanding episode, uh, some of the best piece of business in the entire series, but I would hate to think that that's all they wanted it for. So, you know, it, it, uh, to be continued. Well, Sean, that brings us to you with the uh, responsibility of putting a bow on these three episodes as we wrap up tonight's show. So far, the show has been absolutely superb. And the first nine episodes can set it up as being everything that even casual fans of the best years of the comic could have possibly wanted it to be. It's gritty. It's grounded. Matt is very human, very fallible, and right now he's very defeatable. We so far are just now beginning to see the very first just glimpses of the kingpin. And yet, he's still Wilson Fisk. He's still a human being. Marvel is able to take each of their heroes and able to paint them as people, human beings, fallible creatures with actual flaws. If you want to engage people, you have to give us something to identify with. And thus far, every character in this show, even and especially our villain, is giving us something to relate to. And as we move on into the last part of the series, we're going to see what the very most extreme circumstances can do to people. And I almost guarantee you, you're going you're gonna to find a few moments where you're shocked at what some people do, but at the same time, you're going to be asking yourself, should have been me? Would I have really done anything that differently? First nine episodes of 
Daredevil in the books. Four more to go. Um, look, Daredevil in and of itself has just been a, an unexpected pleasure. I, I really, when they announced what they were doing, the, the four characters they were doing, um, and then the, the Defenders miniseries, I went, oh boy, you know, Daredevil, who I didn't read, Power Man and Iron Fist, who they separated into two different shows for some strange reason, and some broad I've never heard of. I guess I'll watch. And I literally probably would not have watched Daredevil had, you know, the, uh, the the pantheon of nerds (laughs) that that I friend uh, in social media had not been raving about it. Um, And I I struggled. I struggled to get through the first couple of episodes, honestly. And um, once we, once we got to four five and six and then seven, eight and nine, boy, did this thing hit the gas. And, once we got to nine, at that point I couldn't stop. I, I was running red lights and stop signs to get to the end of this series. And that's, I think, the way it should be. I think, you know, The Wire kind of did the same thing. It was always a sort of a slow start, and then by the end of it, you know, I, Sunday couldn't come fast enough for me uh, when that show was live. And so thank God <laughs> that Netflix allows you to speed up the week and go right to the next show. Um, because it, it, because the shows were ending in such a way that it would have been unbearable to, to have to wait another week for them. This definitely felt like the last couple of episodes of Breaking Bad, um, where you, where you're just you're so entrenched in what's happening and you care so much about these characters that um, you know it, it, it aches to wait another week to see what's going to happen to them. And so uh, I've really I've enjoyed Daredevil up to this point. Um, and the best is still yet to come. I mean, the way that the, the last the last four episodes, how they wrap up the story and uh, what happens to to these characters is some really good stuff. There's some there's some surprises. There's some great performances and questions that need answers. There, I I want to talk about it now, but I know you know that that's not what we're here to do tonight. But there are some things that happen in the finale where I'm just like, oh, what? I don't understand this. So, you know, I can't... And, and that's the way TV should be. You know, at the end of The Shield, I have to, I've famously told the story before, but for those of you who haven't heard my stories a million times, you know, when Vic Mackey uh, packs up his gun and walks out of the office to sirens, I had to go running into the next room to wake up my then-girlfriend and be like, I got to tell you what happened. I got to share this with somebody. And that's how good TV should make you feel. It should make you... Uh, just ring with uh, and rise with with passion and, and emotion, and you want to share that with somebody else, and then go start a podcast so that you can do so and not wake up your sleeping girlfriend or wife. I'm going to make Mark sad now and say that no television show has ever made me feel that way. Um, um, you are, you are an emotionless robot, sir, and a cranky old man to boot. Probably. Um, <laughs> That pretty much does it for our actual recap of Episode 7, 8, and 9 of the Marvel Netflix series Daredevil. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rattletchin Broadcasting Network. I'm Gav Napier. I will be joined tonight by Robert Winfrey. And this is the final installment of the four-part review of the Marvel Netflix series Daredevil. Robert, how are you this evening? I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm happy. I'm still conscious. I have not yet succumbed to the inevitable clutches of death. I'm I'm good. Well, it sounds like you're doing better than some of the 
characters we're going to discuss tonight. Um, Just a few. I guess, I, I guess we can jump right in since we've got four episodes tonight. Episode number 10, Nelson v. Murdoch. And Robert Foggy was none too thrilled with Matt's revelation as the devil of Hell's Kitchen. And I can understand it somewhat, and from another side, you think, well, you know, Foggy's looking out for you. You you shouldn't be so hard on him. Uh, just from a, a character point of view and, and, you know, where your reaction would be personally, how would you feel to find out that your best friend and co-worker had been hiding such a secret from you? I imagine I would have reacted very similarly to how Foggy did. I might not have actually said, are you really blind to start my interrogation, but which, and at the same time, I understand that being a reaction. You know, apparently everything you know about this man who you've known, you know, from day one of college pretty much, which we, that's one of my favorite, uh, this is probably my favorite episode of the whole season. And it's, which is odd considering it's light on the action, it's very much the characters and a bit of the story, but all of the stuff with Matt and Foggy, both in his, both in the, you know, contemporary sense and the flashbacks to their college time together, it's just a highlight of how great those two play off of each other. And I imagine I would have reacted very similarly to how Foggy did and... I mean, because that's a heck of a bombshell to have dropped on you. You know, not only is your best friend, your co-worker, hiding something of that magnitude, he's actually a character who, you know, they set Foggy up over the previous couple of episodes as a very anti-Daredevil person. I mean, Daredevil is, you know, the character is portrayed in a negative light. Now, a lot of people believe him to be a terrorist responsible for the bombings that took place in um, 6, where... Uh, Wilson Fisk blows up half of Hell's Kitchen. A lot of people have blamed uh, Matt Murdock, the devil of Hell's Kitchen, for that, and Foggy's one of them. And now you've got your best friend, and now you think he's a terrorist. And there's a lot of shock. There's a lot of having to reconcile things. And I think he reacts very much the way that character, or pretty much anyone, would react under that particular set of circumstances. It's an extraordinarily well-written sequence that takes place between the two of them. And I'm curious for you, the flashbacks to the two of them in college and a bit of their backstory, that played very well for me. I was wondering from your perspective, how did that work for you? I think maybe the best thing that I can say about it, and I don't mean this to be a backhanded compliment, I mean this as a very genuine compliment, but to me the highest praise that I can give it is that their interactions came off very natural. Uh, they didn't seem to be acting. And it wouldn't surprise me to find out that a great deal of those scenes were ad-libbed with uh, Charlie Cox and Eldon Henson playing off of each other naturally. Um, I, I think that those two have developed a pretty strong chemistry on screen. I think their interactions are one of the high points of the show. But as we'll get into over over the course of the next hour, give or take, um I think the show sort of limped towards the finish line, given how strongly it started. But I, I enjoyed the the interactions between Matt and Foggy and thought they came off, again, very natural. And that's not always something that's easy to accomplish for characters, especially when you're dealing with characters who, while not necessarily on this show, but in, in media in general through the comic books, 
have a great history together, and so you know that people are going to be watching with some level of expectation for seeing that. I, I thought they did very well, and I thought that this was, to date, Eldon Henson's by far best performance and, and moment to shine in the series. It's I agree with that completely. This is kind of his showcase episode where he goes through you know a substantial range of emotion, and it all feels very genuine. It all feels very real. And he is one of the stars of this entire series. I mean, he's a character who, and the way he's written and the way he's portrayed, is very much not. He's comedic relief, but he's not a joke. He's a bit on the lighter side of things, but when he has to deal. Uh, you know, deal with the heavy lifting emotionally, he can do it. I mean, he's very much affected by uh, the murder of Elena Cardenas, the woman they've been representing. Here, you have Matt uh, you know, basically collapsing his world on him. Yeah, he does a very good job handling the more serious stuff as well, and that's to his eminent credit as an actor that he's able to do that, because not a lot of people have that kind of range in them, especially over a relatively limited uh, you know, scale. Yeah, there are guys who can do comedy, who can do drama, but to go between them as seamlessly as uh, Henson does for his turn as Foggy is, uh, it's really kind of a rarity. And he does, a, a, again, a phenomenal job with this. Uh, I, I have nothing but good things to say about this particular episode, uh, from top to bottom. Even the stuff with Karen and Ben going to visit Wilson Fisk's mother, it feels... Fine. It feels organic, and again, there's not a bad moment. There's not a bad sequence in this entire episode, as far as I can tell. Well, you mentioned Karen and Ben going to visit Wilson's mother. I've likened elements of this show, certainly not as a whole, because we're a long way from seeing how that plays out. But elements of this show remind me very much of Breaking Bad in tone and pacing and things of that nature. Now, again. How the big picture unfolds, it's going to be tough to match what Vince Gilligan did with Breaking Bad and all the twists and turns that we took along that route. But for me, this was one of those moments where you see Karen Page and Ben Urick go to visit Wilson Fisk's mother in this nursing home. And there's, even though there's nothing, there's no inherent danger in what they're doing at the moment, there's a, there's an incredible sense of foreboding that this, was not a good idea on their part, or at least there was for me. How did how did that scene play out for you? I see where you're coming from with that. I I agree. It was a very subtly foreboding because they didn't beat you over the head with music. They didn't, you know, talk a whole lot about how much, about how dangerous this whole thing could have been. But everyone's reaction when Fisk's mother begins talking about what happened, which we all discovered an episode or two beforehand. I might have been the one immediately prior to it. I forget if it was... Uh, I think it was, it was the episode before Speak of the Devil. I think it was episode 8. Yeah, 8. Uh, Shadows and Glass. And, and so we already know what she's going to say, and uh, incidentally... Fisk's backstory is equal parts fascinating and horrifying in the appropriate measures. It's very, it makes sense by and large. And the way that the characters react to the news that they get, this is not 
you know, they're not jumping up and down with the, you know, we've got the evidence, we broke the case, we broke the story, what have you. There's still a lot of solemnity to what's going on. You know, Ben Urich, as you know, veteran crime reporter that he is, is able to kind of convey the gravity of what they've done and what they've potentially opened themselves up to. And it contrasts nicely with Karen's relative naivete when it comes to the severity of their situation. And that's going to become, that plays very heavily over the next two episodes specifically, that, you know, Ben is very hesitant to take what he knows now and move forward with it. And in large part, I think that's because he is aware on some level that when you begin involving people's families, that's, it's not a line you don't cross necessarily, but it's something you don't cross lightly. And here he is, you know, more or less conned into stepping over that particular line in this instance. And he is aware of the potential world of hurt that could come down on them because of it. And Karen is just kind of happy to have information and, you know, a reliable source, more or less, to confirm what they've suspected about Fisk. And the, the contrast there is very well done. It's very well handled. And I agree with your assessment as far as, you know, it plays somewhat like Breaking Bad in that not everything is immediately dangerous, but there is the overwhelming sense of foreboding kind of throughout that sequence. And it, it again, it's handled in a very kind of understated manner. It, it's adequate foreshadowing as opposed to beating you over the head with it. And that's something that's found very infrequently, I've found, in contemporary television. It tends to be very obvious and very heavy-handed. Yeah, and especially when you're dealing with, with something like the comic book medium where, as a whole, whether it's on the big screen, on the small screen, or uh, in actual comic books, subtlety is not something that's a strong point for comic books and, and probably shouldn't be a strong point for comic books given that the demographic is primarily 8- to 14-year-old boys. Um, through through some guys like Mark Wade and Jonathan Hickman, um, Brian Michael Bendis, Frank Miller, uh, Grant Morrison, we see some elements of of higher writing ability and some subtlety and some twists and turns. But overall, it's still a medium intended for children and young adults. And so uh, the art of subtlety is not something that's tremendously prevalent in the medium. So for them to work something like that into what is still very much a comic book show, I think is to be commended. And again, I, I tried to think of a specific instance from Breaking Bad to compare this to, and probably the the most the most logical comparison I can draw it to was when Jesse started hooking up with the girl that he was renting an apartment from. And on one hand, you're like, oh, great. You know, Jesse Jesse found somebody that sort of breaks him away from Walt, gives him a little bit of breathing room, gives a little bit of normalcy to his life. And then you find out through their conversation that she also has a past with, with drugs. And you you just think, damn it. Because you know eventually where it's going to lead up. It's not going to go anywhere good. And watching it, you don't know what the end story is going to be. You don't know that Walt's going to stand over and, and watch her choke to death on her own vomit during an overdose while Jesse's passed out next to her. You don't know the specifics. But you know that when, when Jesse finds himself involved with another addict, that nothing good is coming. 
even though the initial feeling is one of relief for the character. In this moment, we're happy that Karen and Ben have found something that they can use against Fisk. In the back of your mind, there's still that sense that uh, I don't think this is going to end well for one or more parties. Um, For me, this was probably the last really enjoyable episode as a whole in the series. Uh, 11, 12, and 13 had enjoyable moments. Um, there were enjoyable elements, but with each episode as we go forward, there's also significant gripes for me, both individually and as a narrative through those last three episodes. Uh, what were, just real quickly, your final thoughts on episode 10, Foggy, or Nelson V. Murdoch? Well, real briefly, ironic, you should bring up Kristen Ritter as she's going to feature in the next Marvel Netflix television series. But uh, an apt comparison nonetheless. Now, again, I feel this is kind of the high watermark for the show personally, and I'm not going to debate the merits of, you know, episode 10 versus episode 2 versus episode 8 or 9. I mean, again, there's a, uh, you know, Shadows in the Glass, which is a phenomenal episode. Uh, 2, Cut Man, which is another extraordinary episode. Yeah, I'm not going to debate. At that point, we're nitpicking, you know, either minutia or just what speaks to us individually, and that's a pointless debate. Uh, I agree about kind of going forward. This is a very strong series up until this point, and then it seems like the writers either wrote themselves into a corner or couldn't quite figure out how to undo the Gordian knot they'd tied for themselves, because we get events and moments that are clearly plot devices as opposed to organic storytelling. And again, I'm with you that there are great moments in the episodes to come. There are some very good ones, in fact. But narratively speaking, it starts to suffer from deus ex machina syndrome, where we need to get the plot from point A to point D, and we're hung up between B and C type scenario. And it it starts to suffer a bit from that. But uh, again, the high watermark for me, as far as the first season goes, is Nelson v. Murdoch. And... It's. I don't want to say it's all downhill, because that's a substantial overstatement, but we go from an episode that, you know, kind of like you said, on the whole is very, very good to great, to episodes that have individually great moments but suffer a bit overall. Well, moving into episode 11, we see the path of the righteous. And I, we see Matt make some decisions about what's going forward. And for me, this begins the process of something that troubled me greatly. And I guess maybe I shouldn't hold everything against them until I see how season two opens up. Uh, But for me, episodes 11, 12, and 13 decided that they were going to substitute writing off characters for drama. Because in episode 11, we see two of the... Uh, secondary players in Matt's world sort of disappear. Um, Now, whether Rosario Dawson is intended to return for season two, I don't know. I don't know how much involvement she'll have in the other Netflix series. I I haven't researched those to see whether she's been listed as true that she is partially based on the night nurse is um, someone who is prevalent for the street-level heroes in the Marvel Universe. And so with Iron Fist and with Luke Cage and with Jessica Jones, she certainly has the opportunity to be involved. Whether she is or not, I don't know. 
But we see her patch Matt up one last time, and they say their somewhat poignant goodbyes mixed with a little bit of lightheartedness where she remarks that she at least got to see him with his shirt off one more time. And she tells him, you know, I'll be around if you really need me. Um, Robert, do you know of any additional involvement from Rosario Dawson in this series or in the Marvel Netflix universe going forward? I'm not aware of anything that's been confirmed. Uh, and anyone out there who does know, feel free to, you know, shout at me on Facebook or Twitter or whatnot if you feel so compelled to. I would be surprised if she didn't play some role again. Like you said, she could easily feature in the other street-level heroes. Uh, easily could feature in the Defenders, which is kind of their culmination storyline. I would be very surprised if, at the very least, she is not back for Season 2 of Daredevil. That would honestly surprise me a little bit if she's not in there at all. And uh, that's not just because I feel like Rosario Dawson could use the work. I think the character brings something to the series. I think there's you know, things that can be explored and looked at within it. And I would, you know, I'd just be very surprised if they didn't reintroduce that same character because there's enough backstory, enough interactions, enough on-screen chemistry established with especially Matt Murdock I would, again, I'm not sure one way or the other. I've not heard anything, but I would be surprised if they couldn't come to some kind of agreement to bring her back because she adds a, a nice level of complexity and an interesting character to the overall world that they've created for uh, Daredevil and will be creating for the rest of the you know, street-level heroes. Well, well, Matt Murdock in the comics is, is something of a ladies' man, which... We've we've seen hinted at as we progress through the season and the emotional bond between he and Karen Page continues to develop. There have been multiple hints dropped to this Greek girl that he dated in, in college, which if you're a fan of Daredevil and you don't know what that's alluding to, I suggest you stop listening to this podcast now and go catch up on some uh, basic history of the character. And now we have Claire, who at maybe not necessarily romantically, but at least sexually, there's a relationship there. Uh, there's a, a level of attraction. So there's a very complicated web of, of love interests for Matt. And we see Foggy sort of pulling away from Karen and gravitating back towards Marcy. Uh, but the the big thing in this episode, obviously, is that Wesley finds out that someone has been in touch with Wilson Fisk's mother. And he takes it upon himself because Wilson Fisk, as we have established in earlier episodes, is his friend. Um, rather than than force Wilson to spend time away from Vanessa while she recovers from the attack at the um, fundraiser, which saw uh, multiple people falling over from being poisoned and Wilson Fisk rushing Vanessa to the nearest hospital, uh, Wesley decides that he's going to take care of it himself, and, and he tells Francis, you know, give me your gun, give me the keys, I'm going to go take care of this. If Wilson asks for me, I won't be gone long. And so Francis does... It was a poor told. decision, <laughs> all around. It, it, was not, it was not a good decision, and honestly, not a terrible decision on Wesley's part, just poorly handled. Um, the, the interrogation with Karen Page and and how things unfolded with her, to me, seemed, one, very out of character for Wesley, and the ending seemed very unnecessary for me. And I say this because I'm not opposed to characters dying on a television show. In fact, I, I think the idea of a television show where no one is... 
Pardon? We need more of it. You know, in traditional network television, nothing changes. You know, nobody is ever legitimately at risk. It's one of the things that I found so refreshing about shows like, you know, The Shield or Breaking Bad or, to various extents, The Walking Dead. You you have all these people who you have become attached to, and yet somewhere in the back of your mind is, you know, anyone on this show could die at any given point. So you are constantly nervous for them, as opposed to you know, okay, let's see how you know so let's see how the Flash is going to avert this controversy, you know, this oncoming disaster. There's no, I don't mean to poke fun at the Flash, mind you. That's just what came to mind. Sure. It 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 just and I, that's also because that's a CW show, and I find that particular network one of the more egregious offenders of this particular nasty habit of television that nothing changes. You know, no one is at risk. No one actually dies. No one. There's no peril. Consequently, there's no drama and there's no tension. You're more moderately interested as to how they're going to survive, as opposed to legitimately concerned that no, this you know main character I've spent you know seasons getting to know might actually die off. And it's something that I need to. I'm with you. You know, we actually need more of it as far as television goes. But I, I also agree that. It made very little sense for this character of Wesley, as he's been presented, to go off completely alone and unaided to handle this situation. He's not that he's not that kind of guy. I mean, he would have taken somebody. I mean, even a street level guy, uh, the you know, the black guy who he gets information from on occasion, he would have grabbed somebody to go with him. It just seemed very much like we would like to kill the character of Wesley in large part to try and devote more screen time to Fisk and Vanessa, and that doesn't work out as well, but it just seemed like there was a mandate to remove this character before the end of the season, and this was the kind of jerry-rigged in their way to get rid of him. Uh, Which is really a shame, because uh, I've mentioned this before, I think you agree, the chemistry and the the interplay between Vincent D'Onofrio as Wilson Fisk and the character of Wesley is some of the best in the entire series. And his death was just, it, it was poorly handled. I feel by the showrunners more than anything. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'm okay with him dying. It just didn't make sense. Well, this is where we start to see the diversion from my comparisons to breaking bad in that, you know, when someone died on breaking bad, while it may have been heartbreaking at times and, and while, we may not have wanted to see the character go. By and large, anyone that was killed off on Breaking Bad, it made sense. Uh, it, it fell in line with where the character was. It, it fell in line with what the character's motives were and how they would typically behave. And the situations they found themselves in weren't tremendously shocking. With this, not only do we find Wesley going off vastly unprepared, underestimating uh, someone who is a thorn in their side and taking no one with him with not really much of a plan at all other than he's going to intimidate them and scare them away and make them uh, sing the praises of Wilson Fisk. I can't imagine Wesley being the type of guy to leave a loaded gun within arm's reach of someone he's trying to intimidate while he says, oh, hold on a minute, let, let me answer the, the phone. Um, everything about this situation played against what we've seen from Wesley so far through the season. 
And while, yes, I am disappointed that Wesley will not be a part of future seasons because they've killed his character and there doesn't seem to be anything supernatural about Wesley, I, I'm also frustrated at the way he died because it just doesn't make sense. And to me, this is really where you start seeing some loose threads on the show that start to take away from the overall experience. The other thing that kind of bugs me about that whole scenario is the juxtaposition of the very fine acting that goes into it. I mean, uh, Deborah Ann Wall, who plays Karen Page, does a phenomenal job throughout the entire series, but these next couple of episodes, specifically as it just pertains to her performance... I think she carries herself and she handles these situations very well. She very ad- accurately portrays, you know, the after effects of having killed this human being. We still get cryptic hints about her past, which I imagine will play into season two. Otherwise, they're just throwing a bunch of albatrosses out there for no reason. And it, it just you have the very good acting on both parts, and it's just placed in the middle of this scene that is just so logically inconsistent. It's a very sad thing. I mean, I suppose some of the irony here is that you juxtapose his you know, the death of Wesley with the death in the next episode, which uh, the one in the next episode, and I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves here too much, makes perfect sense by and large. It just sucks narratively because uh, again, that again losing Wesley, it does, it sucks, but it almost seems like. Uh, again, I feel like there might have been a mandate or something that we can only have so many tertiary characters that people care about moving into the end of the season. We need to keep the focus on, you know, Kingpin and Daredevil and everyone else is just get, you know, people that might have been detracting from that seem to just kind of disappear. And it's a really sad thing. I mean, again, especially with the next episode. But. As far as this one goes, now it, it just it made very little sense. Uh, the other, I really, I do need to mention that a minor gripe I have also concerning this, and it deals with uh, the character of Melvin Potter, who makes the suit for. He's made the suits for the Kingpin. He winds up making the Daredevil suit as well. I, I'm just, I think Mark Radlitz brought this up. I'm not really a fan of everyone on the show being able to. You know, you know, hang with Daredevil and get a prolonged fight sequence out of him. It's not... I don't know. It just came off as we need to have a prolonged fight sequence involving Daredevil in this uh, episode somewhere. Let's stick it in here. And then, that well, kind of bugged I will, me. <laughs> I will offer two explanations um, for for said fight scene. One which is perfectly politically correct, and the other which is anything but politically correct. And our fearless leader being in absentia tonight, um, he's he's just going to have to reprimand me later if he does not care for my choice of words. Um, The first is that I feel like Matt Murdock may have been holding back because he did not want to entirely incapacitate Melvin Potter because he was there for a reason uh, to get Melvin Potter to make something for him. And the other is retard strings. Uh, I find both of those to be adequate explanations, actually. Uh, and I, I think the idea of Melvin Potter as a savant when it comes to tinkering with these things, while being something of a general simpleton, I think that's a nice twist. And I'm always impressed by people who can play those parts 
believably without making them caricatures. So well done to the gentleman playing Melvin Potter. Uh, yeah, actually, let me see if I can find the guy who plays him. I actually can't, huh? Uh, no, I, I just I recognize that actor. Uh, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but I do know I'd seen him in some other stuff. Uh, and I'm curious, you're you know more familiar with the source material here than I am. I'm just uh, out of curiosity. Melvin Potter in the original material is a villain for Daredevil, uh, the Gladiator, if memory serves. I just picked that up from uh, Ben Cologne the last time I was on this show, actually. Do you think they go that route with him maybe in season two and turn him against Daredevil and we get you know a, a, another proper villain for him as opposed to just him dealing with Wilson Fisk again? I feel like that's the back pocket type of deal. Um, I feel like that's something that they can just have hanging around to use in a pinch if if they get to a point where they're not sure what comes next uh, in between seasons. So we may see him in season two. I think what's more likely to see from him in season two are the the seeds planted that create that transformation. Um, again, with when it comes to the issue of foreboding and 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 planting seeds for things down the road, to me, Daredevil's repeated promises that he's going to keep this woman safe, and that's how Melvin Potter comes to make Daredevil suit for him is this promise that he won't let any harm befall this woman that Melvin Potter cares greatly about. Uh, to me, it, it's just like a big flashing neon sign that says, well, eventually Matt's going to break this promise and Melvin Potter is going to go into a fit of rage. Yeah, that would make perfect sense. And um, um, so, Good. Uh, just to, uh, to see... To see the seeds planted there and know what Melvin Potter does become in the comic books, they can take their time with it, and I hope they do. I hope they don't rush it. I hope they don't force it. Um, but in, in the meantime, Melvin Potter certainly plays uh, an interesting character in, in this series as a guy that's caught between being inherently good and wanting to do the right thing, but also very emotionally volatile and, and easily manipulated. For me, going into next season, if we see someone fill in for Kingpin as the big bad on the show, I would be very surprised if we don't see some combination of Electra and Bullseye. Yeah, that would make the most sense, again, narratively at least, that those two would uh, kind of be at the forefront. Uh, I think that's all I've got for uh, episode 11, Path of the Righteous. There's not a whole lot else going on here is we see the death of Wesley. We see Fisk and Vanessa on the road to recovery and um, we see Matt continuing to recover and recoup things. Um, That pushes us into episode 12, which was for me maybe the most frustrating episode of the series in both good and bad ways. Um, And we've touched upon it already, so we can just go ahead and dive headlong into it. The death of Ben Urich um, emotionally effective. It, it frustrates you. It makes you angry. It breaks your heart because I, I think the portrayal of Ben Urich so far has just been tremendous. Um, I think that the actor portraying him, I, I, I mentioned this in the first episode of the review that we did. I think he did a tremendous job. And how they were able to find 
a middle-aged black man that happens to look so incredibly like a middle-aged white man from the comic books is astounding to me. Um, but I really enjoyed the Ben Urich narrative that got us to this point, and I think it stayed true to the to the source material that we have for Ben Urich in the comic books. The reason that his death upset me so much from a narrative level is... Again, I find it somewhat unnecessary because he's a useful character. But also knowing that what happened on this show has ramifications throughout the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe, whether it's on the big screen, more Netflix series, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., what have you. Because Ben Urich is a guy that has his hand in a lot of different things throughout the Marvel Universe, whether it's Daredevil, whether it's writing blogs that expose things in Civil War. He, he's, he's right on the front line of covering Civil War, which, surprise, surprise, that's the next Captain America movie. Um, so it, it pulls him away from that. He has a hand in Spider-Man, which if we ever see any more involvement from Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know that's missing as well. So to me, to, to take Ben Urich not only out of daredevil but out of the greater marvel cinematic universe just it seems like a bad decision it seems like a a wasted character especially as well as he had been portrayed and effectively as he had been used i completely agree with you you know it was sad to see the character die because you had become so attached to him he had served as such a great you know kind of anchor to reality throughout this series and seeing him in various capacities throughout the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe would have been very interesting by and large because he is just an old school beat reporter by and large and that's a that's a very interesting character that you could have interact with you know, other people in the again you've got civil war coming up which like you said uh the and again the crossover comic event civil war all of the issues notwithstanding and there's plenty of them, folks. It's such a big thing that, you know, putting it into into the context of a Captain America movie, you could still show, and I fully expect them to continue to show, you know, the repercussions of this on a much, uh, you know, more grounded level. And having, you know, the reporters who were in on it, talking about different sides, dealing with, you know, the ramifications of what S.H.I.E.L.D. had become by that point... Uh, incidentally, I'll personally be quite disappointed if at some point in Civil War, Captain America doesn't actually contact the law firm of Nelson and Murdoch to challenge the legality of the Registration Act, which is something that is never discussed in the comics and is another failing of that particular narrative. But it's... It, I'm with you. It's very sad that they removed that possibility. I mean, on the flip side... Within the context of the, of you know this episode and whatnot, it makes perfect sense for Wilson Fisk to find the man who disturbed his mother and choked the life out of him. Uh, and you know, you mentioned Civil War having plenty of issues. That's actually the crossover that broke me as a comic book collector because to that point, I was very much a completionist, and if I got into a crossover. I got every part of the crossover, no matter how minute or loosely tied to it. And Civil War stopped that. Since then, I only go for the core issues, and if I need to catch up on something that doesn't make sense, I turn to the Internet. Civil War absolutely broke me. I'm I'm thinking there's nearly 200 crossover issues and tie-ins 
across the Marvel universe with that. It was a monstrosity. Um, that they ultimately retconned to mean absolutely nothing. So there's that. Um, Yay for comic books. <laughs> you know, at times, just at times. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did think that this did uh, an excellent job of making Fisk into even more of a monster. Um, it, it certainly, it certainly reinforced that he is capable of doing terrible things. And this is the first time we really see Fisk get his hands dirty with someone other than. Matt Murdock in the form of his vigilante character. Um, again, very, very much uh, a sense of danger. And this one was much more prescient and much more immediate. That when you saw Ben walk into his apartment, they didn't show you Fisk. They didn't hint that Fisk was there. They, As you mentioned earlier, they don't beat you over the head with the soundtrack and say, Danger Will Robinson, here, here's scary music to make you think something's up. You just knew that something was going to happen. And for me, as much as I dislike the decision to remove Ben Urich from the Marvel Universe, I thought that this was a very well-done episode and a very well-done death scene in the sense that they kept you guessing and they kept giving you hope through something that John Carpenter and Mustafa Akkad did with the original Halloween, and that's their use and lack thereof of negative space. Because as Fisk was choking the life out of Ben Urich, we kept getting this this view over Fisk's shoulder of Ben Urich's window. And for me, personally watching this, it, it was almost like watching a horror movie in reverse where in the horror movie you have the hero standing by with this ton of negative space around them and and you expect the bad guy to pop out of nowhere and, and cut their throat, tear their head off, run them through with a piece of rebar or whatever the case may be. Again, something that Carpenter and Akkad did very well in the original Halloween. For me, with this negative space, I kept expecting to see Murdoch crashing through the window, drive Fisk away and save Yurik at the last minute only it wasn't to be. So at least from a directorial standpoint, I thought they did a very good job with this, even if I didn't like where they were going with it. Yeah, uh, I agree. It's very well shot. It's very well executed. I mean, the conversation between Yurik and Fisk actually made me wish they had gone a slightly different direction because it was so interesting. This was the first interaction between those two characters, and it was so well done. Yurik mm-hmm. just kind of steadfastly insisting. Yeah, I mean, Fisk asked him point blank, you know, you lost your job. Do you really think rambling on the internet is going to get anyone to pay attention to you at all at this point in time? And Yurik's response is just, you know, people seek the truth. Uh, that's very much the essence of that character. He seeks to portray it, he seeks to expose it, and let the people you know, know what's actually going on. And Fisk kind of laments the course that modern culture has taken when he says, you know, that may have been true when you and I were young, but it's not anymore. Now everyone's, you know, too obsessed with celebrity weddings and cat videos to care about things that actually matter. Because things that actually matter take too much focus, take too much energy, they're too complex, you can't fit them into 140 characters, and they distract from all of the other texting and the thousand channels on the satellite dish. And it's 
just a, just a brilliant juxtaposition and contrast for those two characters. And it makes me wish so badly that we'd had more of, you know, Yurik questioning Fisk at a press conference, and, you know, borderline ambushing him outside of a building, just to see those two interact even more. But it, this is another scene that I absolutely have to praise Vincent D'Onofrio in because he delivers that monologue and then goes from... He's described this version of Fisk as a bunch of barely controlled rage. And you see that very much so in this sequence when he goes from just questioning and you know, having a conversation with Ben Urich to telling him, no, you went after my mother. I'm not here to intimidate you. I'm here to kill you. And then proceeds to violently murder the man. Uh, it... it it's so well shot and so well executed. It just depresses me that we didn't get, you know, more interactions between those characters. Uh, this episode also deals with, again, I have to talk about a, a bit about Deborah Ann Wool, who uh, very adequately and accurately portrays Karen Page in the aftermath of having murdered Wesley with a handgun at relatively close proximity. She is dealing with you know, the stress of it, the flashbacks, and handles that all very well as an actress. And, of course, we get you know, the exit of Madame Gao temporarily. I assume she's going to play a, another large role, uh, especially in the uh, a forthcoming Iron Fist series, because uh, the Chinese triads play a substantial role, and, and to a lesser extent, I believe the hand as well will play a role going forward and will likely feature a bit heavily in the Defenders eventually, because if I had to guess, it's going to be the group of heroes that we've already established coming together to stop whatever uh, bit of mysticism they're trying to execute in Hell's Kitchen. And, I mean, if I had to throw a loose guess, they're trying to open a portal to another dimension and let through all kinds of supernatural horrors, which is not out of line for what the Hand does, by and large. Well, we but, we got a not so subtle reference to her controlling the Iron Fist and the the heavy strike that she landed on Matt. And then uh, if you if you remember in the uh, episode where Matt breaks up the heroin ring, sets things ablaze, um, the the Iron Fist logo is actually on several of the boxes. So definitely some foreshadowing for what's coming on, on the Netflix series in this episode. Yeah, that is the sign, isn't it? Uh, I'm not terribly familiar with the Iron Fist character, so a lot of the little things are going to slip by me. Uh, I don't think I have a whole lot else about the ones we leave behind. Again, it, that whole final sequence, the decision to kill Ben Urich, the way it's executed, is just kind of indicative of some of the problems we have over these last few episodes, in that you can still see some of the greatness there again every a lot of these things are very well executed technically it just doesn't again sometimes it just doesn't make sense and it, they're just narrative things that kind of stumble a bit in this particular episode as well it this seems like a very drawn out episode we get a lot of stuff that is just kind of there by and large again you get Matt breaking up the heroin ring which had to happen but it just seemed like it was one of those things like, oh, we need to give Matt Murdock something to do in this episode. We're going to, you know, okay, we need to get rid of the Chinese, and then Fisk will deal with Owlsley in the next episode, and then Wilson Fisk stands alone on, as the kingpin of crime. 
And it, it just felt like we're getting to the point where they have to check off boxes. And they might be well executed technically, but they're not considered from a narrative standpoint as strongly as some of the other aspects have been up till now. Well, and not to beat a dead horse, so I won't go back to Vince Gilligan's masterpiece, but in, in your great dramas and your great television shows, generally the episode right before the season finale, it, it gives you an impending sense of urgency. It makes you feel like, okay, you know, the next episode's going to be something big. We have to see something big in the next episode because that's how they're going to wrap everything up. And, you know, whether it's the Wire, The Shield, The Sopranos, Deadwood, uh, Carnival, you know, even something as simple and as gravita- gravitated more towards the masses than than the heavier fare that we've discussed, something like NCIS or, or CSI, generally their penultimate episodes of the season do a very good job of creating that sense of urgency if you're a fan of that show. Now, obviously, if you don't care about NCIS, then so be it. But they do a good job of creating a sense of urgency and drama for the season finale. This, leading into the season finale, I felt like it fell a little bit flat. There was, you know, I wanted to see how everything ended. But I wanted to see how everything ended because I'd already invested 12 hours in the series. There was nothing especially about this episode that made me say, okay, i got to know what comes next. i got to watch this right now. Well, I think that's a byproduct of the Netflix model. And you and I talked a little bit about this the last time I was on here, that when a network orders a television series, there's a big kind of onus on that series to, in each individual episode, leave it, almost at a mini cliffhanger because they have to keep interest episode to episode because they can be canceled between episodes by and large. And there's a big, you know, sort of Damocles hanging over their heads all the time and they have to write and produce that way. With a Netflix series, you get, they order 13 episodes, they're going to release all 13 episodes because they do it all at once. So from a narrative standpoint, you can let things breathe by and large uh, and it, as good as that is over the first, you know, four or five episodes to not be dealing with cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger in a desperate bid to get people to stick around long enough to become invested in the characters and draw decent enough ratings, not to have some group of moronic executives decide, no, we're going to level the axe at this because the ratings dropped two tenths of a, dropped two tenths of a point. Thank you, Fox, for letting me do that. Bring that up over and over and over again. And again, as great as it is for those first four or five episodes to just let a story breathe and develop naturally, it removes a bit of of that on the back end as well. Because as a network television series approaches its season finale, they have to generate interest. They have to generate urgency. They have to generate more viewers. And in this case, it's again, it's almost the reverse effect of what you get in the beginning. Because in the beginning, you have them desperately trying to you know, accumulate viewers and keep you around. But by the time you get to a season finale, you have established that. You have a viewer base. You have at least enough people sticking around to see the, la- the close of the first season's worth of story. So you can pick and choose where you want to end that penultimate episode, how you want to generate your interest. You get the reverse here where 
they have kind of the narrative all laid out and they're not as considerate about building that momentum because it's still going to be there. They're not going to get cut off at the last second. And instead of that being almost a point of narrative celebration to kind of generate interest and get and bring out the best in the writing and the production staff, it's just kind of coming to a close and it falls a bit flat when compared to a great or even an adequate television series that is good at doing that. It's and I mean I would put up put up the first five episodes of Daredevil against the first five episodes of any network television show ever. I'll, I'll say ever, and I think it holds up over those first five episodes, surpassing a great many of them. I mean, again, the truly great television stuff, you know, Breaking Bad, The Wire, The Sopranos. Okay, I'll, it's not going to work. It, it's not going to stand head and shoulders above them. Like it does stuff like CSI. Uh, much as I love the show Criminal Minds, it certainly stands above the first five episodes of that series. Yeah, anything else basically, it stands head and shoulders above because it's of that narrative freedom. Again, the downside is the back end when there's no drive for ratings. There's no drive to generate interest because you're so secure in it. It's you know, again the lack of competition, the lack of that you know sort of Damocles, for want of a better expression, shows when you get kind of towards the end. Because I'm with you, it as deeply effective as the death of Ben Urich was, there was nothing else about the episode pushing the narrative forward. And that's a fault of planning out the show and trying to generate interest from episode to episode. In this particular instance, you know, basically not doing it at all, because like you said, you've invested 11 to 12 hours into this product. You're not going to skip out on the last episode. Yeah, and you know that that does lead us into the final episode, uh, for better or for worse, where the secondary character death tour or death march continues. Um, we'll touch on that later because it didn't upset me nearly as much as the others. Um, a lot goes on in the final episode. We we see uh, Matt and Foggy and Karen celebrate a victory of sorts as. They managed to get Detective Hoffman back into custody for the one cop they know that they can trust, and he brings oh, this empire me. crumbling down. What's that? <laughs> that bugged me so much. I mean, that oh, was... Well. Uh, I mean, from a narrative standpoint, we get to the final episode, and oh crap, we actually have to bring him down. What could we possibly do? Well, there's this character that we didn't exactly deal with, and he's now going to be the linchpin in the Kingpin's crime syndicate. He's going to know something about everyone, and this one character is going to be enough to bring down his empire. And we've just never been privy to this information before. And that's, to me, what they did with Hoffman to try and bring down the entire Kingpin empire just reeked of, again, uh, ghost in the Machine Syndrome. It just reeked of, okay, we need plot point to do this, and this works. It, I definitely it felt me to like death. This, I definitely felt like this was the very aha comic book moment. Like, is this where they got a little cutesy with things? And they're, you know what? They're allowed to get cutesy and comic booky with stuff to season. If they keep it to once a season, I'll let it slide. I, I agree that it was a bit hokey and contrived, but... If they do it once a season, I'll I'll allow it and I won't gripe about Everybody it. Everybody gets too one. Much. That's it. Um, 
but we did see a, a bit of celebration as Foggy and Matt and Karen get back on the same page, only to find out that Fisk is not quite so easily defeated. And so Matt decides, well, now I have to put on the Simpleton's costume that he crafted for me out of the unbreakable uh, trench coat lining material that Fisk and Owsley wear, and I have to go put a stop to things. Before the big showdown between Matt and Wilson Fisk, though, we see Wilson Fisk put the pieces together on the attempt at what he thought was the attempt at his life at the fundraiser, only to put the pieces together and realize, no, they were going after Vanessa to try to bring him down uh, and try to keep him under control. And so, yet another secondary character meets their apparent demise as Leland Owsley is tossed down an elevator shaft in an abandoned building and left for dead. Um, Again, this one doesn't bother me nearly as much. Uh, Leland Owsley has always been a secondary villain for Daredevil in the comic books at best. And in the comic books, he's not nearly uh, as old as uh, Bob Gunton trades him on this show, so I, I, ne- I, w- I was never under the impression that this version of Leland Owsley was going to be the owl and, and the bane of Matt Murdock's existence as he is in the comic books from time to time. We also see an allusion to Leland's son, which I would imagine is how things will progress from here if we do see the owl as a villain. Um yeah, they mentioned his son whatsoever. a few times throughout the season, and I would, I'm would i with you. I'd imagine his son is going to be the one who kind of tries to be the bane of Matt's existence. Do Do you have any any thoughts one way or the other about the apparent death of Leland Owsley? Nah, it works. Uh, they, all, they set this up from the very beginning of this season in that, you know, Kingpin is in this... When we first meet him, Wilson Fisk is kind of the figurehead of uh, a syndicate, an organization comprised of the Japanese Yakuza, the Chinese triads, the Russian, uh, I forget what they, uh, I forget the name of their particular group of organized crime, uh, so forgive me there. And a bit of, you know, with a bit of old-fashioned, you know, 1% or money laundering thrown in in the form of Leland Owlsley. And throughout the whole season, he slowly picks off all of these people who are in this council so that at the end of it, he'll be, the, he'll be able to stand alone atop the pyramid of dead bodies. And I'm okay with that. That makes you, That's okay. And look, Owlsley biting it here doesn't bother me in the least. I mean, at this point, he was just kind of there to be killed. He didn't offer a whole lot. I mean, he was an, he was a fun character to have around. Uh, no, I, again, I was perfectly fine with it. I was fine with Fisk shaking off the taser to the neck and then you know throwing him down the... Sh- I was fine with all that. It made sense for what things were at the time. Uh, that doesn't bother me almost at all, really, at this point. I mean, I, and again, they were just killing off secondary characters left and right for these final few episodes, and uh, he was... Again, he was going, and I think we all knew he was going from as soon as Fisk started playing all of the other, you know, kind of council members against each other. You know, we all knew the Russians had to go. They were too volatile. Oh, uh, Nobu is becoming a pain. No, look, Daredevil lit him on fire. That works for me. 
Uh, Owlsley is just kind of a white-collar prick, and seeing Fisk throw him down an elevator shaft worked just fine for me. Yeah, it, it, the only concern that this leaves for me is that they're going to be somewhat thin on secondary characters heading into um, the the next season. And I know that there's a wealth of characters to draw from in the comic book, whether it's guys like, um, oh, I can't think of his name, and he was just in the most recent episode of the Daredevil comic book. Uh, but there's a villain who controls shadows that is sort of a joke, but Matt has to deal with from time to time. Uh, there are various love interests. There's Electra, there's Bullseye. Uh, there's always going to be Kingpin hanging around. I, I'm just curious to see how they fill the numerous gaps left by the deaths of Leland Owsley and Wesley and Ben Urich and the apparent departure of Claire for the time being. Uh, it, it certainly leaves the show a little bit thin underneath the top layer. Uh, so they've got their work cut out for them heading into next season to fill out the roster again, as it were. Um, I, I thought that Fisk having one last plan to get out of trouble uh, in, in this situation was very appropriate. And it, the narrative for, for Wilson Fisk, and it was portrayed brilliantly by Vincent D'Onofrio. I, I can't say enough about what a tremendous job he did. For all of the faults and flaws that I have with how the show limped towards the finish line in some respects, I have nothing bad to say about Vincent D'Onofrio and his portrayal of Wilson Fisk and the Kingpin here. It, it was tremendous in every sense of the word. But I think the, the narrative of Wilson Fisk is a man slowly coming unraveled in a desperate bid for power, that he he does consolidate the power of the Hell's Kitchen crime syndicate. But as we see him become more and more unhinged and desperate and willing to get his hands dirty and bludgeon people and strangle people and, and throw himself out in the open, I thought that was handled very well by D'Onofrio culminating in this episode where we finally get to see the uh, the face-to-face showdown between Matt and Fisk that we've been waiting on since Fisk was taunting him over the radio as he lay at the bottom of a building. Yeah, I if I could draw another narrative, another comparison to another, uh, at times, very good television series, this watching him ascend to power and then struggle to maintain it is very reminiscent of uh, the Frank Underwood character from House of Cards, who schemes and connives his way through two seasons to actually become president of the United States. Apologies for spoilers there. And the entirety of the third season is his desperate bid to hold on to the power that he's obtained and finding that it's really not that easy. Obtaining power is exponentially easier than maintaining it. I mean, it's a theme that's also explored in the Game of Thrones television series. I don't watch it, but I've read the, I've read the novels so far, so I'm aware of some of the ongoing themes there. And it's something that, again, we see with Fisk. He wants to be, you know, powerful. He wants to rebuild this neighborhood in New York, kind of in his own image. And along the, as he tries to get power, the trail of bodies he leaves behind him just starts weighing him down. And eventually he just unravels. Uh, his almost monologue in the back of that FBI transport van was very... Uh, another great performance, not just by D'Onofrio, but great insight into the characters. He finally comes to 
the realization that he is, you know, not the good Samaritan, but he is the ill intent, as he puts it in that. And uh, I mean, the uh, the fight sequence between Murdoch and Fisk at the end is very well done. That entire last twenty minutes, give or take, when starting with Fisk's escape from custody, is an is just an extraordinarily well done twenty minutes of television by and large. I, you know, for all the gripes I have about other things, especially over these last three episodes, I have a hard time finding anything objectively wrong with that final sequence of events. It was all handled and executed very well. Yeah, I, I don't have uh, as many gripes about this episode as the others that we've touched on, simply because I thought they did a good job of wrapping things up, of completing the narratives. Uh, I will say this, I, I think the suit looks ridiculous, and I know it's tough to walk that line between satisfying comic book fans and not looking awful, but uh, for whatever reason, the Daredevil costume just didn't click for me. Um, I, I'm, I couldn't even, if you ask me what was wrong with it, I, I couldn't even put my finger on it and tell you what I think is wrong with it. I just know that from the first moment I saw it on the screen, when I saw Charlie Cox moving around in it, um, it, it just doesn't feel right for me. I don't know if it looks too bulky. I, I, it's just, for whatever reason, that's not the way I pictured Daredevil in costume appearing. I can see that point. Uh, I will say this. I think the uh, from the neck up, it looks fine. The cowl, the helmet, the mask. I think they did a great job with that. Uh, I had kind of the same reaction you did in the sense that this almost feels like uh, it should be the midway point between suits. Like, I mean, when we first meet him, he is obviously in no suit at all, and he makes jokes all the time about working on it. It almost feels like this should be his. If I don't, if you don't mind using the Iron Man reference, this should be like the Mark One armor. This is kind of what it felt like, and it still needs to be refined and perfected. And they, the problem is, is they presented what feels almost like an unfinished or very rough cut of the suit in the final episode, and to be his suit going forward. At least that's kind of how it came off to me. I guess to me, if I'm, if you put a gun to my head and say, tell us what you didn't like about the suit, which would be a weird conversation to have. I don't know why anyone would do that. But if that happened, then I guess to me, I guess it seems too bulky and armored for me. Um, in reading the comic book, it, it always almost looks like a beekeeper's be, outfit, doesn't it? You know, that kind of does. feel. And, and it, in watching the fight scene with Matt versus Wilson Fisk, it, it seems like a lot of the fluidity of motion is gone in the suit. And for me, I, I always pictured Daredevil's costume as being essentially a, a full body set of tights, much like Spider-Man. Um, not something bulky and armored, but something that allows him to move quickly and silently and uh, allows him uh, fluid motion. And then to see the armor and the the thick padding and, and things of that nature, I think that may have thrown me off. And especially when we got this idea that the suit being was being designed from this fabric that they used to line Wilson's suit. You know, Wilson's 
suits don't look bulky and armored and, and things of that nature. So I thought, okay, we're going to get this nice sort of bright red, very fluid, very form-fitting costume that's, that reminds me of what we see in the comic books. And maybe it's something as simple as the Batman ideal that they want to keep things at least somewhat reality-based. I get that. Uh, but at least for the time being, the costume's not working for me. Well, and it wouldn't shock me if they'd made some refinements between you know, this one and the ne- between season one and Daredevil's next appearance. I mean, you brought right. up the Batman one, and uh, they actually did a great job of going from Batman Begins to the Dark Knight of Bruce actually addressing some of the issues with the suit. You know, I I needed to be lighter, so you know, separate the armor plating uh, so I can have more flexibility, and I need to be able to turn my head and. Yeah. We might we could very easily get a sequence like that between Potter and uh, Murdoch in the next season, or at the start of the Defenders, even with him. Just you know, I need a bit more fluidity going into this, at least in the upper body. You know, we just need to work. We just need to you know fine tune the kinks a little bit here, which I would be completely in support of. Again, I don't hate the suit. I just uh, I'm kind of with you in that it feels, like I said, almost unfinished in the sense of it's not yet the finalized, fully realized version of what Matt Murdock is going to wear as Daredevil on a you know, semi-nightly basis. Well, before we put a, a finishing touch on this, just real quickly, because I do want to touch on what's coming next in the Netflix Marvel universe, um, just real quickly, you know, overall thoughts on the series and on the finale. I very much enjoyed it. I can still go back. I could probably still go back and rewatch this season without too many issues. I mean, yeah, again, it stumbles a bit at the finish line with especially, you know, episodes 11 and 12. But on the whole, it's a very well-realized world that they live in. It's it's depiction of, you know, reality in the setting of the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe is very well done. Uh my complaints are few and far between, by and large, and I think it's a it's a it's a smashing success for putting some of these lesser known characters into a Marvel television series into a you know a Netflix series. If they're all as good as this, again, my complaints are going to be few and far between. I don't have a whole lot of hope for a few of the other uh, properties that are coming, but. As far as this one goes, it's. Uh, I'm, I mean, you, when you consider the amount of damage that was done to the character of Daredevil with the Ben Affleck movie, and there was a substantial amount of damage done to that property, mind you, this is a rousing success on nearly every level, I'd have to imagine. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see what comes next. Um, I, I did think at a couple points watching this and watching uh, Avengers Age of Ultron that we may be nearing the tipping point for comic book properties. Uh, I'm excited that Jessica Jones is the next Netflix series just because I want to get that one out of the way so we can get to the stuff I really want to see, which is Luke Cage <laughs> and Iron Fist. Um, and they may surprise me. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna count it out. I, my anticipation for that just happens to be the lowest of the four series. Um, I, I agree with you. I think they did a good job of fitting this street-level action into the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe. They touched on it a couple of times in the series through dialogue. 
they didn't beat you over the head with, oh, yeah, this is where Avengers happened to. Um, so I think overall, you know, I'll give them a B-plus for it. I definitely think the the last three episodes sort of hurt the overall vibe and makes me a little bit concerned, as I mentioned, about the depth of of the character roster moving forward. But overall, I don't, I don't have a, a, a bad thing to say about the series. And we've, we've talked about this before, but if, if Vincent D'Onofrio doesn't get an Emmy nod for this and his portrayal of Wilson Fisk, then I'm not sure that we'll ever see anything from a comic book movie, get a, a serious Emmy or Oscar nod because his portrayal of this, was as fine of a job of acting as I've seen on any television series ever. I will pull up Professor Farnsworth and go, I just don't want to live on this planet anymore. I mean, if he doesn't at least get a nomination, if not an outright win, uh, because he just does, I'm with you, he does such a phenomenal job from top to bottom with yeah, that character. I, I won't. I won't hold my breath for a win just because of the stigma attached to it being a comic book series. But if there's not a nomination here, then whew, I, I just can't. I, I just can't imagine him not getting a nomination for it. But I, I guess we'll see when when Emmy season rolls around. Um, if you're a fan of these characters and you're not real sure where to go to get a little bit of backstory, or if you're not familiar with them and you want to read up on them, uh, for me, you can always. When it comes to Daredevil, you can always rely on Frank Miller's uh, Man Without Fear story. Um, the Daredevil End of Days story is uh, a lot of fun. It's outside canon and it's set in the future. Uh, but it, it's an excellent story that came out in the last couple of years that I think is worth a read for the future of the Daredevil character. Uh, for Robert Winfrey, I'm Gavin Napier, and on behalf of Mark Radulich, the namesake of the Radulich Broadcasting Network, be well, be safe, behave.